VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, September the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get it going. I know you're going to pick up the phone and give us a shout this morning. I can feel it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, so what's kind of amazing, isn't it? Here comes the Labor Day weekend after an extraordinarily hot summer, maybe the hottest summer, certainly in my memory, and then back to school comes upon us and we get out of the Labor Day weekend and just like you flip the switch, the fall is in the air and it's a little bit cooler, although very pleasant. I don't mind these temperatures whatsoever. Actually sleeping under the covers for the first time in a long time but made the critical error last night. I'm not a great sleeper anyway, right? When I wake up, I have a hard time getting back to sleep. And I've done a good job of getting the phone away from me. I don't even bring it in the bedroom anymore. Leave it out in the kitchen. But I get up last night to make my water, check the phone. Why did I do that? So I checked the phone to see that a tennis match I was interested in was still on. So I flicked it on. The second longest match in U.S. Open history. And my guy, Alcaraz, beats the Italian sinner. But, you know, don't do that. And if you have any tips about the getting back to sleep, getting to sleep in the beginning is, you know, one of those things. You come up with routines and what have you, and under the covers, nice and cool, makes it easier to sleep. But check the phone and end up watching tennis. Curiously. So the U.S. Open, the, big, the biggest tennis stadium in the world is Arthur Ashe Stadium right there in Flushing Meadows, New York, where they play the U.S. Open. It was 54 years ago today that Arthur Ashe became the first black man to win the U.S. Open Tennis Championship. There's a fascinating story behind it. He was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army. He got discharged one year later in 1969, but he was supposed to go back to Vietnam or to go to Vietnam. Apparently some sort of a negotiation with the U.S. Army and his brother Johnny took his place and went to Vietnam. Wild. He's, at the time, the only black man to win not only uh, the U.S. Open, but Wimbledon and the Australian Open. And of course, they play on the big stage in the Arthur Ashe Stadium at the U.S. Open. Curious stuff. All right, a couple of interesting ones before we get into some issues of the day. A car for you, a car for you, a car for everybody. The first Oprah Winfrey show debuted and aired in 1986 today in history, which is a strange one. And also on the small screen, it was today in 1966 where the first episode of Star Trek featuring space, the final frontier, the USS Enterprise, for three years and, of course, still famous to this day. The big fans call the Trekkies. It was today, 56 years ago, they first saw it. Of course, created by Gene Roddenberry. Set in the 23rd century, some notable actors, of course, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and many, many others featured on the show. It had a lot of, I don't know, prescient things. You know, people say, well, this is why there's been so many technological advancements and why they happen so quickly, whether it be cell phones, computerized tablets, or whatnot. Also had a mixed-race cast, multiracial cast, you know, talked about civil rights kind of stuff on, on stuff on Star Trek, and that happened today, the first episode. And a little bit more cultured, David, or David, Michelangelo's David was unveiled in Florence in 1504. All right. Quick sport note before we get into some other stuff. So it was in 1988 that Holy Cross, the Crusaders, won the Canadian National Challenge Cup 
It's the only time a team from this province has won that national championship in soccer. They've got an upcoming reunion. It's the 24th annual Holy Cross reunion dinner. So the whole team, or the team, the surviving members of the team, I should say, a couple of guys that I know are no longer with us, uh, they're going to be in attendance. It's coming up on Thursday, the 15th of September. Dinner's at 7.30. It's at the KFC, Knights of Columbus on St. Clair's Avenue. Uh, tickets are 40 bucks, so you get to spend a dinner with your fellow Crusaders or friends of the club and the members of the 1988 Canadian National Champs will be in attendance. That sounds like a bit of fun. Okay, back to reality. So yesterday, anticipated it was going to happen, but the Bank of Canada has made the decision to apply a whopping big increase in their benchmark interest rate, three quarters of a percent. It's now 3.25%. And none of us can borrow the money at that rate, but that's the benchmark rate. They consider neutral rates in between 2 and 3%, so now we've cleared that. Of course, all in an effort to combat inflation. Now, there's many moving parts as to why inflation is the way it is, and it's not just one country, it's a global phenomenon, and you know, it's a bit over my head on some of these things, but anyway, so the Bank of Canada has made this decision. Okay, experts, <laughs> experts, they say that an interest rate hike, even if it's all about inflation and the, tr- the uh, chancellor, the wants to get back to like two to three percent inflationary pressure, it takes a couple of years for it to be measurable, you know, to have an appreciable impact on inflation. And so all of these things happening at the one time, inflation and cost of living and supply chain interruption and consumer debt. We t- talked yesterday about the fact that people are turned to their credit cards more and more than ever. So in quarter two of 2022, there was a 6.5% in consumer debt load. You know, in this province, we have the second highest consumer debt, excluding mortgages in the country. So while the Bank of Canada needs to do what they need to do regarding their monetary policy, it impacts everything else we touch. Everything's so expensive, and now to service my debts is going to cost even more again. Just imagine if you're in a variable mortgage and what they refer to as a trigger point, So, yes, okay, back in Canada, do what you got to do. But it's a perfect storm, isn't it? It doesn't really pressurize Tiff Macklem, but I guarantee you, to service our debts, that interest rate hike, as much as it's got the right intentions and remains to be seen what the outcome will be, because it's a couple of years down the road before they can measure it, but there you go, up again. That's six times this year, I believe, is it? Is that the sixth time? No, five. Five rate hikes this year. Unprecedented, the word everyone loves to use. Okay. And speaking of that, so the price of food. We, we can talk about whatever you like, as you know. So I read a story this morning, like Kids Eat Smart, preparing for a busy year. There's a family who, mom and dad exchange emails with me all the time. And they, they say they're a middle-class family. They have two children. Uh, one's in junior high. One's just heading to high school for the first year, grade 10 students this year. And the mother admitted to me, really quite candid with their, what goes on in their family, for the first time ever, they have t- they're going to be telling their grade 7 student child that you're going to be eating your breakfast at school every day. As opposed to, you know, having some Eggos or some fruit or some cereal or whatever at home. Now, simply because of the cost, they're going to be relying on Kids Eat Smart. And they do a great job. We all know it to be true, right? And they serve up, what is it, 38,000 meals every school day to students in 269 clubs. They do a great job. Add to it the stories we saw from Stats Canada regarding the fact that the national average of food insecurity around children is one in five. In this province, it's one in four. So 22,000 children live in a food insecure setting or family or home. 
So the numbers are staggering. Just imagine middle-class folks who have never really had that struggle to the point where they needed to rely on school lunch programs or through Kids Eat Smart programs are now telling their grade 7, that's where you're going to eat each and every day. UNICEF has ranked Canada 37th out of 41 wealthy countries for access to healthy food for children. Canada is the only G7 country without a national school meal program. So while I still think it's a a wonderful place to live and a terrific country, we're lagging behind in some of these key measures. But feeding our children, that number is going to stick with me forever. 22,000 children, food insecurity is a big part of their life. Okay, then you go back to, I don't even know if this is a big story or people really care too much, but, you know, the amount of confusion surrounding uh, tax on sugary drinks, what is being applied to, what was told we were exempt from it and is now being paid, and it's just dog's breakfast. It's just ridiculous how bad this has been rolled out. So there's lots of finger-pointing of blame going on, but now the answer apparently is if you want to set uh, or you want to file a formal complaint or to flag an inconsistency or if you've been charged incorrectly, call the Minister of Finance's office? Uh, What's that going to do? So the number, 729-6297, my apologies to whoever's answering that phone, and I don't imagine you're going to get to speak to anyone anyway, but they're going to be flooded. Why? Because this has been deeply flawed. Is it the biggest story in the country, the biggest story in the province? No. But it's just indicative of how sometimes even good intentions of talking about healthy lifestyle and better choices being made, this doesn't work. It's just that's not working you know even if you thought okay well i will turn to the 100 percent natural fruit drink or i will move from the full bore pepsi to the diet variety and getting charged the tax some retailers aren't even applying it it's at the resale level or the pardon me the wholesale level but like what's going on here and so that's the solution called the minister's office okay maybe we just go back to the drawing board there's no shame in the government uh, saying out loud maybe this isn't isn't working like we had hoped so why don't we do what we know has worked and elsewhere Uh, other jurisdictions. If we want to have less sugar as part of our diet, let's get the manufacturers through incentives and or additional taxes to lower the sugar content. So then we don't have to worry. We're going to consume less sugar because there's less sugar in the product. I don't know. Just thinking out loud. What do you think? Anyway, and then we got some uptake last week when we talked about labeling on foods and drinks and whatever's in the grocery store or on the aisle, and then also the expiry date versus the best before date, and just how many people, how many Canadians uh, see a best before date, and that's it. Don't eat it. Right in the trash. And what that means for food waste is extraordinary. And I admitted that I kind of go by best before dates. I'm trying to change my tune on that front because I hate throwing anything in the garbage. I'm the leftover king. But anyway, you want to take that on. We can do it. Uh, speaking of the sugary drinks and your overall health, we're anticipating two separate announcements today, one from Prime Minister Trudeau and one from NDP leader uh, Jugmeet Singh. We all know that they struck a supply and confidence agreement back in March, right, to prop up the Liberal Minority Parliament. And one of the things on the table for that negotiated deal was dental care. So I guess that's coming today. We don't exactly know what the details will be. So there's going to be for families, uh, children under 12, they earn $90,000 or less, they're going to be given some additional dental support. We don't really know what that is going to entail. So there's going to be apparently a one-time benefit for low-income renters, a temporary boost to the GST credit. Some people 
people are looking for further information about what's going to happen on September 24th when the employment insurance rules change. Of course, they were adjusted for the pandemic realities. But I guess that dental care program announcement is coming today. It will be interesting to see just how generous that program will be. And of course, I think there's still lingering questions, is how dental care is backed out of our universal health care. When any doctor will tell you that your overall dental health impacts your overall health, period. So anyway, we'll see what that announcement entails when we get it later today. Uh, oh, this, uh, I think this is going to be uh, heard as good news. And this for sometimes governments can indeed hear from us with our questions and concerns and criticisms and make appropriate adjustments. One of the stories that was going around fairly frequently in this province was the fact that the Fishery Guardians, which is a federal government program, it's a private company's contracted out. This year it's a $5 million deal. So they add to the wildlife officer's presence on the rivers to try to control poaching, of course, of Atlantic salmon. But the contract was going to be up too early. It was going to leave another month for sure for the poachers who know full well they can circle a date on the calendar as well as anybody else so the guardians would be taken away now thankfully i see this uh, tweeted out by liberal member for avalon ken mcdonald that the contracting for fishery guardian services is an integral component he says of the delivery of dfo's newfoundland and labrador fishery guardian program he is pleased he said to share that there is a four-week extension has been made to the fishery gardens contract to ensure continuity of services through the end of the 2022 season decision good decision so we when they're wrong we try to point it out and when they make a good decision like this one that's certainly worth mentioning as well how are we doing out there david let's get her going oh before i forget so i think there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the world energy gh2 proposal for you know with the wind farm for in the effort to export green hydrogen john risley the man behind that proposal is going to be coming on the program this morning sometime in the 10 o'clock hour not a hundred percent sure what time it will be so that just means you have to stay tuned but that conversation is coming up i've got a bunch of questions on my mind if you want to add to the pile you know what to do you can send me a tweet send me an email or whatever you are inclined to do all right we have talked about the fact that there's a bunch of law professors from Dow's School of Law encouraging the province to establish a civilian oversight board, which makes all the sense in the world to me. But then, apparently, given all of the spotlight shone on the RNC and allegations of sexual assault, you know, all the rest, and of course, the Douglas Nelgrove trial, which these thrice had to appear in court and now convicted, they changed the rules about the ability for police officers, what they say, to, to transport people or to give people to spin home. So now here's what it says. The policy says uh, officers can transport members of the public in their police vehicle only as a part of a call for service. If there's an emergency situation, an officer must offer to transport someone outside a call for service. They must notify the Forces Communication Center, provide the time and vehicle mileage at the start, at the end of the ride, which is obviously a good decision. They should not be driving people home. And, you know, the, even all the stories we've heard of especially young women getting rides home, and don't take my word for it, take all the allegations and the stories we've heard, and, of course, things that have been part of uh, evidence offered in the court of law, the Douglas Snellgrove trial. So they quietly changed that. Apparently that was back on September the 10th of 2021, but probably a good idea once again. All right.
Let's see here. Let's get to the calls here from quick this morning. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But time for a tune. Oh, yeah, the price of gas and stuff, very little adjustment one way or the other. Either when we're talking about gasoline or diesel or home heating fuels or propane, minimal changes, certainly nothing earth-shattering. But in that vein, it was today, 1979, at number one on the U.K. charts, Gary Newman. You got it ready to roll, Dave? So it's Gary Newman with Cars. It's a bit of a quirky little weird tune, but it's one that always caught my ear, and you all know the rhythm and the melody to it. And also, I think we're going to anticipate a call from Alan Doyle today in Telltale Harbor. Runaway smash hit in PEI all summer. They're bringing it on the road back to this province this year, or this September, so we will go ahead and have a chat with Mr. Doyle as well. How are we doing, Dave? You want me to give it the shout-out? All right, here's a little Cars. When we come back, I'm speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Pat, you're on the air. Hey, good day, Patty. Hope all's well with you. So far, uh, so good. <laughs> yeah, it's a wait, wait to see what the day I'll bring. Anyway, Patty, I uh, was talking to David. There's a boat in St. John's, uh, the National Geographic Society boat, uh, the Explorer. Uh, David says she's been in the province for a while now, while now though. Uh does anyone know exactly what she's doing if she's in on you know part of the island uh, out to the uh, Titanic just in 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 you know loading up supplies heading across the, the Atlantic does I, anybody have any uh, on what the purpose is I don't know uh, just but uh, just so I know exactly what we're talking about what kind of vessel is in port I'm sorry it's the Na- National Geographic Society oh cool and uh, their boat's name is the Explorer. Uh, they're in the province. According to David, she's been in uh, this. I don't know if you want to consult with your uh, with David. Uh, he, she's been in the province for a week or more, according to David. I thought I heard, that's what David said. Yeah, apparently they were in Labrador. They're up in Maine as well. So if they've been here that long, it's probably not a supply load issue. So they must be doing some work to cover something in the province. So I guess up in Labrador and Maine and something on the island if they've been in St. John's Harbor for that long. But that's pretty cool stuff. I mean, National Geographic has been around for, I think, like 130 years or something. My grandfather, Neri, had a stockpile out in the sunroom in his home. And, of course, mostly known for the photojournalism, I would think, is the consensus on that. But that's cool. I don't know why they're here, but I'd like to uh, find out exactly if one of the reporters oh. or something hears something and that uh, you can tweet to the news I, i'd love to know myself what they were uh, you know what the purpose of their stay in labrador someone is. someone just told dave exactly what it is apparently it's a uh, a cruise between here and halifax or something but i'll, I'll get confirmation there's no sweat to just contact the port authority oh, National Geographic Harper's Cruises. Apparently so. I don't know. I've never been on one, nor have I ever heard of it. But that's the word I've so far. I've never heard of it either. I, I'm, a, I'm not a, a subscriber. I usually pick them up used still now and again. But I used to collect them big time years and years ago. Uh, yeah, I never ever knew that they provided uh, cru- cruises. Anyway, uh, another question. Cond- uh, I don't think condolences is the proper word, but... Uh, all the best. All the best, and hope they recover to the people uh, come by chance last week. Uh, does anyone? Re- uh, did anyone after get any answer? What union exactly was it? The steel workers, the carpenters, millwrights. The calls that exactly union. The calls we have are from the United Steel Workers. I think that they might represent all hands inside. I'm sure there's maybe some rep- representation in the carpenters, millwrights union. Yeah. Uh, 
Sorry for cutting you off, David, if I did. Uh, Paul, uh, Patty. Patty. Uh, is, uh, they, uh, as far as I know, they also represent, like, everybody's under them, so they might even represent the other union, the other members that are part of other unions, if you understand what I'm saying. I suppose, and just uh, not to be saucy, but what, what's the point, though, or, of what union is? Oh, yeah, I, I, was just, I was just trying to find out what the... What the well, you, you know, whether they were millwrights, carpenters, uh, steel workers, the, the people that were working, that's all. I was just trying to find out exactly what they were. Yeah, we don't really know, and people are really hell-bent exactly. for leather to get a lot of details. And, of course, until there's a, a bit more to investigation. No, I mean, oh, my God. Certain, exactly. Certain details, expect, respect privacy, respect everything else. Like, I mean, I saw Ryan Cook with CBC that night tweeting out, Guys, is there any first responder who knows you know exactly? Is there anyone dead? Whatever. If you know something, uh, tweet out to me. And I'm in the back of my mind that's saying, my God's sakes, I mean, give people time. Give the responders. Let's take care of the people. The, the details will come out. It might take time, but the details will come out. Anyway, thanks, Patty. Okay, no day. problem. Have, have a good day, my buddy. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, now, Ron Cook is just doing his job. Right. That's that's not any ill intentions coming from Ryan Cook. He's simply trying to get some information, which is exactly what he's paid to do. Very quickly, in this uh, from Philip Earl up in Labrador, the reference to the vessel, the Explorer. It's a cruise ship that has been making the journey throughout Atlantic Canada. A beautiful red bay on Monday. Apparently, it's in Twillingate today. So there you go. The listeners always help me fill in the blanks. Let's go to line number two. Merv, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Um, it, it's Merv Wiseman here. My voice is a little off. I'm under the weather a bit there. Um, I wanted to, the purpose of my call is to pay uh, some tribute to uh, Juanita Lister, who passed away uh, this week. Uh, Patty, just quickly before uh, I, I get into that, uh, I just, your invitation that went out yesterday to have a discussion around supply management, uh, speaking of agriculture, um, it, it's very enticing, and I must say, and I intend starting next week to to call and take you up on that and, sure. and uh, supply management is is a big issue a huge issue for the country not just the province it's a dividing line between um, you know agriculture levels of agriculture in this in this province and i agree with you that very few people understand it um, i've uh, made it my job to understand it i think reasonably well some might argue differently but uh, i want to have that that discussion so i just want to serve notice on that okay consider uh, me in, uh, <laughs> notified <laughs> uh, anyway uh, look uh, i would certainly be remiss if i didn't um, take some time to pay tribute to one of the listers she passed away she was in her 80s and um, you know, she, Juanita, I, I served on a, a board of directors with her right back to the 1980s, of course, and she became the, the very first president, woman president of the, of the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Agriculture. And I think that was, that was a, a milestone and a landmark thing, but, you know, she truly was uh, a pioneer in agriculture, no question about that. And, and, you know, she, one of the other big things is that she she had a really big hand in um, uh, women's, the role of women uh, in agriculture. And, of course, going back over the decades and maybe even the centuries, you know, it, was, it's, it, was, it would seem to be the man that was, you know, up front and, and you know, re but really behind the scenes. It really was 
the women who did the business pieces more often than not. And at the same time, you know, stayed at home and, and attended to all the domestic, uh, you know, the responsibility of the children and so on. And it was just a, such a daunting task. And, and, and she had, had uh, you know, the wherewithal really to, to start to, you know, pull together and organize uh, a formal, uh, you know, farm women's group and so on. And she was very instrumental in that. And, you know, that's, that's very, very noteworthy. And I think, you know, in her passing, it's difficult to to see her pass without acknowledging that. And, and, and she, she is a Hall of Famer. Uh, she was inducted to the Atlantic Hall of Fame, of course. And uh, But still, I, I hope... Uh, you know the the right places in government will do the right things to acknowledge the the role that sh- that she played and for me she she was a mentor there's no question about that i served on her board of directors when she was president and likewise she was on my board of directors when i was president of the federation for a number of years and was there as past president and again continued to offer an awful lot of uh, guidance and so on but uh, yeah I mean she made quite a mark in, in agriculture I can't I just can't say enough and there's no question she was a pioneer she's certainly um, well she, you know she was the perennial matriarch of uh, of the Lester's on Brookfield Road and I think most people are very familiar with the Lester's and she instilled in them uh, many of them uh, I know personally is as as friends, but she instilled this idea in them that they, you know, that their level of independence and their 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 ability to do things and the confidence and the entrepreneurship that they all have all engaged in, even to today, really, I think, uh, uh, was uh, originated, you know, with the with their, uh, you know, with, with their uh, uh, matriarchal uh, approach from. Uh, from Juanita Lester, and uh, just I just want to acknowledge that this morning and, and express my condolences uh, to the family, and they should rest easy knowing that she she left a, just an amazing legacy that will continue to live for quite a long time. I appreciate your uh, perspective, certainly having served on the board with her. Uh, the gentleman who called yesterday to let us know that Miss Lester had passed, immediately thereafter uh, I got a, I'm going to say half a dozen notes uh, singing her praises and telling stories of her impact in the agricultural industry here in the province, so I'm glad that you offered your thoughts here this morning, Merv. Would you like to say anything else quickly before we say goodbye? Oh, that, that's great, Patty. My voice is starting to fail me here, so I better I better get uh, get what well, getting's good there. Thank you for the time for, to do that. Pleasure, and I look forward to the supply management chat as well. Me too, absolutely. Thanks, Murph. Thank bye. All right, bye, bye. Yeah, there you go. Obviously, she had a major impact, and it was as quick as that. Uh, no, no exaggeration. Inside of five minutes after the chat we had yesterday with the fellow who told us of Juanita Lester's passing, a lot of really interesting stories, some of them going back decades as to her impact not only on her own farm but the industry as a whole. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a gentleman in the queue who wants to talk about dangerous drivers. Loads of those out there. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Well, an emailer asked me pointedly why I didn't mention anything regarding the mass murder in Saskatchewan this morning. Maybe it's because, I mean, I don't know what anyone finds interesting or wants to talk about, but the story is just so incredibly sad that I'm not really sure what to say about it. So the main suspect, Miles Sanderson, he was arrested yesterday afternoon. He some sort of medical distress, died at the hospital. And, of course, left in his wake, 10 people dead. Well, I guess 11 with his 
his uh, the other culprit here. So and 10 people dead, 18 injured, 13 different crime scenes. So if you want to talk about the, the parole issues surrounding Miles Anderson's lengthy, violent criminal history and or the RCMP or anything surrounding it, I'm happy to do it. But I didn't mention it because I didn't really, you know, sometimes things are just so overwhelming and so sad. I'm not really sure what to say about it. But if that's a topic of interest to you, you know what to do. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Oral. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi there. How are you doing? First and first foremost, I want to thank you on behalf of Derwin. I got my eyeglasses. But oh, hey, good. Patty, I didn't get my eyeglasses, see, Patty. I want to tell you a story now. Okay. I'm, a, I'm, I'm down from Alberta. I'm a pure newfie. I was out for 20 years out there. Okay. My girlfriend died in my arms. I lost my mother. I lost everybody. Now, I was going over to get my glasses, see? And I'm not going to mention the taxi stand. They, uh, the winter, they had one uh, guy in it, and he was very dangerous. He had my grandson. He's starting there, uh, kindergarten today, Tanner. He almost got hurt. Now I'm going to get my glasses. The van nearly knocked me down. And then the car nearly knocked me down, Petty. So I confronted them, and you know what they said to me? Hey. I don't know what they said. No, of course not. He got aggressive towards me. He got saucy. All I want is an apology. I could have got killed. Okay, so I, what, no, I don't I, even know what I, happened, but anyway, keep going. But anyway, Patty, I'm going to tell you, they're out there. They're very dangerous. They're not paying attention. to. This is all the bikers, boys, that ride the bikes. They all grew up on a bike. What bikes? Are, we, are pedal bikes a or pedal motorcycles? Bike, Patty, or? A pedal bike. I had to right away, bro. I was getting ready to crash. The girl gave me the finger, stopped the car. She was getting very aggressive. Now, I know this girl. So I met her yesterday, and all I wanted was an apology. I don't want nothing else, just an apology. It goes a long ways. Sure, it does. Okay, so... Right, you know, and now I'm going to... Now, Patty, I'm not a happy camper with the girl or the taxi stand. So I'm going to go a little further now, and I'm going to get the news up there and show them exactly what's going on, because the police are always sitting there watching me. She says, oh, I'm watching them, but I can't catch them. You understand? They're sneaky, see? They're going right through the light when they got the crosswalk. I got the right away, right? Well, I, I can't picture my mind's eye where we are, what the situation okay, or the scenario okay, is. Let's say, okay, but, we're, I'm from Newfoundland. Let's picture we're on Rope Park Lane there. Okay, Rope Park Lane. And now you got it, uh, whatever, across the street, and you got the bed sitting room there, and there's four, uh, uh, two sets of lights there. They don't pay, pay any attention to the uh, anybody on bikes. I am anyway. I just want to let that uh, thank God I never got killed or nothing like that. I just thank God because someone told me to stop. See, and I stopped. If I didn't have to stop, I would have got it. And the owner of that taxi stand thinks if he can knock on my grandson's door and give him money for old tickets uh, to say here's five dollar cab fares, that don't work. It's not going to work anymore. Okay, is the cab stand on Pennywell or uh, yeah Pennywell Road? Well, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to read between the lines, and, you know, I'm just trying to throw you a hint, right? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what we're talking about, but uh, motorists need to be mindful, especially now with the children back to school, and they're going to be out there more and more, and so and they're going to be in uh, groups, and they might be a little bit distracted, so we always need to remind people to slow down. The aggressive, reckless driving around here is really quite something. Uh, yeah, but, Earl, I'm glad you survived this encounter. I'm not, again, yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I just want to save any... 
I just want to say, if anybody picks up a bag on the corner of Pennywell Road, I lost me wallet, I lost me donation that I was going to get me glasses, that's gone. How'd you oh, lose it? I almost got killed, Patty. Okay, well, Earl, I'm sorry to hear that it happened, and I know that we had someone willing to help you out with the eyeglasses, yes, and it's a shame that they're not on I face. appreciate this. No problem, and I appreciate the time. Take good care. Thanks for letting me have, to have my talk, Patty. No, no sweat. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go up to Labrador. Uh, line number one, Simeon, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, uh, Patty. Morning to you. I, uh, I'm in St. John's. I got in late in the evening yesterday, and I have my reasons coming in yesterday, and most foremost, I guess, uh, my reason to come in here. <clears throat> Emily, my daughter, was born with the three MC syndrome, and she's having a lot of difficulties like breathing, and she had a heart murmur, <clears throat> plus other other medical medical needs that she needs. Uh, last seven days, I think last six days or more, uh, we've been taking our, our granddaughter Emily to Jane, uh, in Goose Bay Hospital. And we noticed that she was coughing, and she was, uh, you know, she, we knew she was she was coughing a lot, and her she wasn't the same. Her, her feeding was different, and uh, every time we went to uh, clinic, uh, in hospital in Gooseway, they keep telling us Evelyn's not sick, Evelyn's not sick. They always send her home. Well, I know, I remember, we call one one day. We took her twice a day during the day because she wasn't breathing. Her breathing was was very very awkward, and so we took her to the hospital, and the doctor keeps saying to us, well, everybody's not sick, everybody's not sick, she'll be better tomorrow, and that's what they keep telling us, and we've been doing that for the last few days until every condition was very worse than yesterday, and I got up around 5 o'clock, me and my wife yesterday, uh, thinking that we should rush her to the hospital, and then we gave her some uh, medicine that was uh, Tylenol and uh, and some puffers that was given to her, and she slowed down. And then I called my sister in another, uh, in I think she's in Halifax with her meetings. And then I asked her, I said, "Is there anything that you guys can donate? A couple, uh, three tickets for us to fly every because everybody's her condition is getting worse, and she can't breathe, she can't, she's coughing, crying, not eating." And I said, I can't take her to the hospital anymore because they keep telling us Evelyn's not sick. She just have uh, all these uh, flu symptoms that every kid has in Gooseway. But I'm not a doctor, but I, I noticed that the big difference on her breathing. And, uh, and I mean, I'm a trained first responder, a first responder when I was a police uh, police officer. But I can notice her breathing and her temperature was very, very, very out of out of whack. And you know, you don't need to be a medical student to notice this, but you know your child, your grandchild, he's not feeling well. He's not, he's not himself or herself. And finally, yesterday, my my uh, sister from the band council said, "Well, we'll take care of the, uh, the tickets for Friday. We flew over Everly with along with my son and my wife, and now we are here in the hospital. And now, not even one hour." She was diagnosed with uh, with double pneumonia. You know, you know, 
And uh, I, I told the, the doctors here that uh, we've been taking every to the hospital, and I said we finally couldn't take it anymore. We, we brought her here, here, and right away they, they, they gave her attention. Every didn't have to wait five minutes in a corridor in a waiting room. She, she, the doctors knew she was really sick. The nurses know she was really sick, and then she had to take her to the to examining room. And gave her and and did all the uh, the assessment and then they admitted her. Now she's here, and now she's being given I, I, IV and antibiotics for pneumonia. I mean that's to me that's too many times. So these these incidents that happen, I think uh, I've been on very vocal about a, a lot of this healthcare Labrador, and I, and I'm, and then this time I think I shouldn't be shouldn't be too be too be easy on them this time. I got, I'm sick and tired. Of of seeing young children, people dying, as they're supposed to be saved. But I mean, what would happen if I stayed home with Evelyn? Would she die? I wonder. Well, where is she now? She's in the Janeway Hospital in St. John's. Okay. And she's safe, and she would have died if I didn't bring her here. I mean, me and my wife said that last night. We would have lost Evelyn, she said, and we both said, yeah, we would probably lost her because of those. The actions that was take, taken by physicians in Guzri telling us not sick. I know she was sick. I know she wasn't so sick. She was. She wasn't herself. And and a doctor can tell you that she's not sick, and now she's she's diagnosed with da- double pneumonia here in the hospital. I mean. It's ter- it's a terrible story. I guess the good thing is that you were attentive enough to get what I get, I'll refer to as a second opinion. Yeah, but now that yeah. she's being looked after, she's being yeah. admitted, and hopefully will recover. Uh, yeah. I pre- how did you get here? Did you fly commercial? Yeah, did you we have fly medical? Here on on a dash eight, we flew from Goose Bay to. But we had to drive from Chagic to Goose Bay, Goose Bay to here, dash eight on a flight, and uh, we were going to drive. Uh, take every down here, but we said no. She's not going. We're not going. We're not going to catch a, uh, a hospital because her condition was really bad. It was really, really bad, Patty. Because I, I couldn't. I mean, I, I noticed she wasn't breathing good, and I know she was crying. I noticed she wasn't eating. So I'm not a doctor. I, I noticed that it's a common sense, but they, they should at least done something to her. They didn't even do the blood work. They didn't even do the X-ray. The X-ray machines are in a freaking hospital down there. There, there's machines out there that could do the blood work. They could do an X-ray. They could have seen the pneumonia. Mm-hmm. But well, they didn't want to do that because they want to see her die, and that's that's. Uh, oh I have gosh. to accuse them. I have to accuse them that I really have to because why oh would somebody feel if their child is sick and you take them for one week and they don't do this nothing like blood test, blood work, uh, X-ray, if 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 something growing in her chest. I mean, come on. Well, I don't know what to say to your uh, assertion that they wanted her to die, but uh, Simeon, I'm glad that she's getting the help she needs and the appropriate well, care. Yeah, I'm coming for after them. I'm coming after okay. them. Okay. When is done here, I'm going to go straight to a, a Confederation Bill, or I want to set up a camp out the Heather's, Heather's uh, office, CEO. That's enough, Daddy. Simeon, okay. I wish her a speedy recovery. Thanks for this. Good luck. That wasn't me. That was him. Uh, before we get to the break, so there was, we all are 
familiar with the story in the Supreme Court ruling regarding the sale of the St. John's Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation assets. You know, cemeteries were ne- uh, negotiated out, but so many churches and parish halls and other pre- uh, real estate properties, are many have been sold, and many are still to be sold. The gentleman, one of the key litigants, or pardon me, the key lawyers representing the victims at Mount Cashel is Jeff Button. And he's a member of the Queen's Council, or the designated Queen's Council, so he's actually been named one of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada in 2022 by Canadian Law Magazine. I just saw that go by. Congratulations to Jeff. He's done a lot of high-profile work here in this province, so being recognized by Canadian Law Magazine, which I think is the go-to periodical representing that particular field of endeavor, so congratulations to Mr. Button. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. Whatever's up on the queue after this break, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, some pretty sad news coming from the UK this morning. The 96-year-old monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, is now under medical supervision. Many of her family have left to uh, head to Balmoral, Scotland, heard the Queen's residence, of course, in Scotland. So apparently, Charles and William have already made their way there, and it looks like the end might be near for Queen Elizabeth II, so there will be a lot of eyes paying attention to that developing story in the UK today. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, yes, i just calling to inform listeners that 811 is down. Oh, is I it? Call- Sorry? Oh, is it? I didn't know that. I called just then. I tried the one eight 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 seven zero nine two nine two nine. It was also down. I then called the hospital and then just let them know the switchboard. They tried it. Same thing. So anyone who tries to reach eight one one, it's not working. Well, that's not good because that's a real go-to number for any to- all types of uh, medical advice and other pieces of information. So it's temporarily down, I assume. I just clicked on their website to see if it was actually detailed there that what might be going on. No mention of it whatsoever. So if you're looking for 811, you're going to have to hold on for a little while. And it's interesting that you also tried the toll-free number, the 709-2929 number, which is, of course, the same access to those professionals. We'll actually reach out to the department and see if they can give us any information as to why it is the way it is. But I appreciate the heads up this morning caller thank you thank you Bye-bye. take good care bye-bye so 811 down for now uh let's go line number one Take more to the pc member for exploits that's playman forcey good morning playman you're on the air good morning patty morning to you patty i'd just like to talk about the uh, price of milk certainly and the which adds to the high cost increase of uh, living right now uh, i brought this up in the house of assembly earlier this spring when the uh, dairy farmers and uh, and farmers were uh, were saying that the uh, price would increase due to a high cost of operations, you know their uh, fertilizers increased, fuels increased, feed increased, which ends up, Patty, to come come down the line to the end users, and ends up on our kitchen tables, you know, and forcing people to uh, uh, pay more for for uh, healthy options. Yeah, so the milk issue is, I know a lot of people will point at uh, the province again, because at the exact same time when this sugary tax, the sugar sugary drink tax thing is implemented, and of course, then the price of milk goes up. But milk is a national issue, so that there's a commission that deals with it. It's all based on supply management, which is a tricky piece of business, If even just to navigate to try to understand why it's there, what it means, what the impact is. So, yeah, milk and might not be much, 2.5%, which equals about 2 cents a liter, but it just 
just seeps into our psyche that everything that we want to buy, everything we look at in the store seems to be just getting more and more expensive every single time you shop. That's what it feels like. So these things just frustrate people or anger people, even if we're not talking huge sums of money. But it's also went up six cents in February, so it all adds up. It does, Patty, and now, uh, you know, with, especially with the sugar tax out there now, and people are forced to make those uh, healthy options. You know, what what healthy option do they, do they take? You know, you know, when you rethink your drink, what option do you take regards to rethinking that? You know, your milk has gone up now at, a, at, at another high cost, and the uh, sugary sugary taxes uh, on, on, the, uh, on the drinks are forcing that up, you know. Those are uh, adding more stresses, uh, Patty. This tax right now is adding more stresses to families and low-income families. Uh, low-income earners, and even uh, regular families—you know—that you know—that uh, you know, work every day, that sort of stuff—to provide uh, juice, uh, to provide those milk necessities to their to their families, especially the children before they head to school this time of year, uh, to provide them with some healthy options, and uh, and, and it's not helping. It's, it's, it's creating stress and and uh, and forcing families to make options that they can't even afford to make. Petty. Yeah, um, and you know, it was wonder that milk was exempt from the tax anyway, given the sugar content of milk. So that's, I guess, a different conversation. But uh, in summary, it's just becoming pretty unmanageable. And then one of the ones that I think people throw around a little bit too carelessly is just drink water. Look, it's great advice. And it is certainly the best thing you can do to quench your thirst is to drink water. But many people use uh, sugary, sugar-added drinks for a variety of issues. We'll talk about diabetics and what have you. And there's other nutritional products out there that have sugar that are now being taxed. But the Just Drink Water uh, declaration is kind of unfair for the people living in 160 communities or thereabouts that have been on long-term board order advisories. So it's not that simple. Because it's one thing for me to flick on my tap here in the East End St. John's and have some nice, clean, crisp, uh, clear, crisp, uh, fresh, portable drinking water, but not everybody has that luxury. So we've got to just be mindful of what the reality is for so many different communities. There's about 50,000 people thereabouts that don't have access to clean water where they live. That's extraordinary in modern-day Canada 2022. Sure it is, Patty. I mean, see, so, you know, and uh, so you know, this sugary tax now forcing people to uh, to make those options. It, it just doesn't make sense, Patty. And uh, you know, like you got a lot of the, uh, the juices in 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 the uh, in the stores right now. You know, you take your Minute Maid juices and and uh, Ocean Spray juices. You know, was supposed to be at the times uh, a good drinks, but I mean, say so now they're forcing those options up to even have those drinks. You know, and and milk gone up extra extra cost. It it just doesn't. Uh, it just doesn't add up to people trying to make those, those healthy choices. No, I don't think there's much anybody here can do about the price of milk because that's a federal issue for sure. Now, the the uh, producers here can you know, adjust accordingly, but when they've got all their inputs that have exploded in price, they're not going to be making some big whopping cash windfall on, on this particular hike. So the, the milk conversation is a little bit different than things like tax on sugary drinks. Look, if it's not working and you know, I know it's early days in the sugary drink tax issue, but it just seems so convoluted. So, and if it's not being applied equitably across the board at the wholesale level, some drinks are being exempt, some aren't. We don't know what the retailers do because it's not up to the government how much my shop can charge for a tin of pop. But it's just really messy out there. And that just adds to people's frustration. You know, it's not very coherent. It's certainly chaotic. So if we want to reduce the amount of sugar, then do what they did in the UK. Get the manufacturers to reduce the sugar. So then it doesn't matter what you buy, it'll have less sugar in it. 
Yes, Pat, in regards to Milk Community City, the province, the, both, both levels of government need to sit down and, and, and correspond with this. And we say, you know, like I said, the, uh, the, the feed cost, fertilizer cost, the increased cost to farmers. You know, this just got to come down to the end user, like I said, like I said earlier. So, uh, you know, uh, people have got to sit down and, uh, and make some arrangements with those people. So at the end of the day, our, our food consumption is, is, is able, to, uh, able to be taken, uh, taken serious and, uh, and we're able to buy that stuff. I appreciate the comments and the time this morning, Pleeman. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Pleeman Force. He's the PC member for exploits. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, mention Kids Eat Smart. So they had a little bump in their budget, and the province should really look at bumping up the budget for the, or the subsidy that flows to the School Lunch Association because while they are trying to provide a healthy option in school, even if you just talk about, just think about just how much more they're going to have to spend on milk at Kids Eat Smart. That's huge implications when you talk about organizations like that. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the topic, well, that is up to you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, Telltale Harbor has been getting rave reviews from audiences who have taken it in at the Confederation Center of the Arts on Prince Edward Island this summer. Of course, there's a couple of locals involved. The showman himself, Alan Doyle, he's not only the lead, he's also part of the music adaptation team, along with Adam Brazier, Alan Doyle, uh, pardon me, Adam Brazier, Bob Foster, and our mutual friend, Edward Rich. Alan Doyle joins us on line number one. Good morning, Alan. You're on the air. Thanks so much for having me on. What a time we're having over here in PEI. I, I bet you are. It's a long summer to be away, though. It is so. i got to tell you, the middle of August, it really struck that I was going to be away for almost the whole summer. I was so glad to get home and play the George Street Festival, and I got home for Labor Day weekend and all that, but excited to be coming home uh, uh, now and bringing the show that we've been working on, my God, for four years working on the show, and delighted to be doing it for the home audience. Uh, tell us about the show. What is it? The show is an adaptation of the film we all know and love that starred Mark Critch and uh, Brendan Gleeson and Gordon Pinsent and a few others um, called The Grand Seduction. And it's about an Atlantic Canadian uh, town that has lost its fish plant and is in the running to get a replacement industry to, uh, to save the day. But it needs to jump over a few hurdles, the biggest one being they need a full-time uh, family resident doctor. Imagine that, Patty. And the, uh, how's that for a topical news story these days? <laughs> That's right and, there at the uh, crosshairs. Yeah, uh, and uh, so the character I play, Frank, who who uh, will be the equivalent to the character that Brendan Gleeson played in the film, uh, sets about to convince everyone in the town that a visiting doctor will indeed stay in our little town and will indeed uh, save the day and uh, and make a home for himself and hijinks ensue. Well, we know the hook that was used in the Grand Seduction. What's the hook for the family doctor in Telltale Harbor? Well, the, you know, the funny thing about the, the, real, the reality of both stories is that the doctor actually falls in love with the place, right? The doctor, you know, despite all of the uh, lead characters' uh, ruses and muses and schemes and scans, what the doctor actually falls in love with is the reality that there's a place that people, you know, feel so dear about that they're willing to jump through whatever hoop possible to stay there. And, you know, coming from, you know, you know Newfoundland like you and I both do, it's like, geez, it's like everyone is, you know, is like that. You know, we're willing to do almost anything to stay home home and almost willing to do anything to keep our little towns going and and that is the that is indeed the hook that the doctor falls in love with
Hollywood ultimately. Well, it's the people. The Grand Seduction was just a wonderful adaptation from the French original. And, of course, you mentioned all the people locally that were involved. But for you as a performer, and I introduced you as a showman, and I think anyone who's ever seen you as part of Great Big C or with your own band now, it's absolutely a big part of what you do. Not only writing songs and playing guitar and singing, you're a showman. What was it like to transfer those skills as part of a band to a cast in a production on stage like this? Oh, some skill sets came with me, like singing and writing songs for the creative part of it, but I was unaware of how completely different a performative art form this is, you know, like the even compared to being in film and television and stuff. It's just your relationship with the other people on stage and your relationship with the audience is completely different, and you have to trust the story that you're in and, and uh, you know, the, the confidence and the... Uh, the trust you need to put in the in the work that you prepared is kind of different, and I sort of explain it, Patty. Like you know, part of your job as a showman, as you say, and I'm delighted to be called that any time, to be honest with you, because it's still my favorite thing to do is put on a show. You know, when you're the front guy in a band, you, your job is to walk out on stage and to you know immediately figure out what the crowd in front of you would like done. How can you present the songs or a variety of songs that would suit that night better? Perhaps if it's in the theater, it's a bit quieter. Or perhaps if it's in a beer garden like George Street, it's a little bit more another way, you know. And then, and then of course, and you vary it uh, as soon as you press go. But with this kind of theater, you you don't adapt it at all. I mean, all the variety is in the way you know you deliver the same lines to people, and you trust what you've done. And it's just it may, it's a very much more disciplined art form than I'm used to. <laughs> I, for me, I you know I have a hard time remembering the words to all the songs. I don't know how you guys do it, but trying to remember your lines for whether it be TV or film, or even in a production like Telltale Harbor is something that I really admire, people that can pull it off. So you're bringing it home. And I mean, I've read the reviews and you set records for how quickly you sold tickets on Prince Edward Island. Yeah. Give us some of the idea about where you're going to be in the province so people can have a look. Yeah, so we're, we're doing a very special thing in Labrador. We're doing a concert version of the show in Labrador uh, because of the you know the geographic location of it. We can't get our trucks up there and back down in time to do the whole thing. So we're preparing a really special thing for up there where it's the songs and the stories uh, curated on stage special for a concert version. And then, but the whole thing, when we finish here on the... Uh, on the 24th of September here in Charlottetown, uh, the whole stage, all the lights, all the sound, all the band, everything goes in a truck, and it shows up in Stephenville, and we, we play Stephenville Arts and Culture Center on the 29th. We do the first and the third in Cornerbrook. We do... Uh, um, we do uh, a night in uh, Grand, Grand Falls, and we do two nights in Gander, and we do four nights in St. John's to run it up on the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th of uh, the, uh, of October. And so uh, it's yeah, it's it's a real, it'll be a real trip bringing it into all the all the arts and culture centers at home, especially the smaller ones, because you know it's a it's a big show and it's like a it's a, a big time you know. Um, Toronto Broadway-sized musical, you know, that has a full band and lights and a revolving stage, and the amazing Jillian Kylie, of course, directed our show, and it has all that amazing craftsmanship that she's known for, for, you know, somehow changing a, a wooden box from a church to a kitchen without you knowing how she did it. <laughs> so what's the future hold for Telltale Harbor? Because, you know, we see Come From Away and the international run that it's had. What's the plans for this production? Well, we're running it until, like you say, the 15th of October with this production, and then we'll see what happens after that. Uh, there, are, uh, there are a handful, if not a dozen, of Canadian uh, theaters that would like to have it run in their in their season uh, over 2023 and 2024. Uh, we 
we may or may not go that route or we may go a different route with it. We're not totally sure in, in all honesty. Um, but um, the future looks bright for it as a piece of, you know, ongoing theater. And uh got to tell you, I'm so chuffed. Uh, and I'd be delighted to be a part of a few of those, if not all of them, just because it, it's, we've, like I say, we've been working so hard at it. You know, I've never worked so happily so hard on a, on a project. of. It's the greatest combination of storytelling skills that I've ever been involved in. You know, it's like... It's, you know, there's songs and there's stories and there's lyrics. And, and of course, Ed Rich wrote all most of the dialogue anyway, and he's such a brilliant person. And then Jill directed it, and myself and Bob Foster crafted most of the music. Uh, and Bob, people will know as the, as the music director for Come From Away that's come to Newfoundland in a little bit. And and it's just like, it's been a real thrill to be a, a part of it, to tell you the truth. And it's all, uh, the most the thing I'm most happy about, Petty, is that it's resulted in my favorite thing, which is a great night out for people. People who've been coming to the theater have left laughing and crying and having a great time and and somehow without knowing it we've 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 crafted the night out that everybody wants right now you know a few laughs a few uh you know heartfelt songs from home and and uh yeah it's it's uh, it's been a real tremendous experience i've got my tickets uh, so safe to say you've got the you've caught the theater bug yeah, it's a really unique bug too, Patty. I got to tell you, because it's like it's um it's like I said, it's a different interaction with the people on stage. Although I was a bit heartbroken, I must say, as as we were finishing the rehearsals with. Uh, with the cast, you know, and we usually had just Bob on the piano as we're doing it. But then one day these cool people walk in and they sit down, like down below and go, oh, no, the band is, and the band always, and I went, I had this like, oh, my God, I'm not in the band. Like, I don't get to play in the band on the show. And so I felt like, it was, but it's, yeah, it's, it's awesome, man. I'm, I'm delighted that people have loved it so far, and I'm really excited that ticket sales for it are, are so strong back in Newfoundland, and, and we're going to have a great time showing people from all over Canada what an awesome spot we're from. Here, here, and congratulations on a brilliant run, and I've got the information for the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador dates at my fingertips, so if you send me an email, I'll be happy to send it along to you. Uh, break your legs, safe travels. We'll see you soon, Alan. Thanks for everything. Have a great day. You too, pal. All the best. Bye-bye. Alan Doyle, Telltale Harbor, coming to town. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we said earlier in the program that the gentleman behind the Port-a-Port Wind Project, eventual export of green hydrogen, representing the umbrella company World Energy GH2, John Risley, he joins us right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the company behind the Wind Energy Project proposed for the Port-a-Port Peninsula is World Energy GH2. The gentleman behind that company is John Risley. He joins us on line number two. Good morning, Mr. Risley. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, and thank you for having me on your show. Happy to have you on, sir. Now, we know that the Department of Environment and Climate Change has sent the proposal back for some more details and more environmental assessment. The story goes that the gov- provincial government advised you or told you to only put forward like a third of the potential scope of this proposal for this uh, set of environmental assessment. If so, who told you that or who advised you to do that? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a bit of uh, confusion here, Patty. Um, there are three separate sites which make up our, our total program. We have only submitted uh, an environmental application for one, and that's because a lot of work uh, goes into uh, such an application. I think I think ours was over 500 pages, and and those 500 pages require a lot of, of uh, as I say, on-the-ground effort, um, and we've spent the summer getting uh, a environmental um, assessment report ready for the second such site, and we're close to being able to file that. So n- nobody told us not to file. We were only in a position to, to file 
um, as the work was done, and as I say, that work was done on the on the first such site, which is the Port of Port Peninsula, and the work is just now being uh, ready for us to file on this on the second site. Do you appreciate the concern that people have that if only this environmental assessment is on, on this particular package or parcel of land, that at some point the operation becomes too big to shut down, too big to shutter, so that a complete environmental assessment, before you even break ground, before you spend a dollar, would give cold comfort to the people of the province? Do you appreciate that concern? Look, we, we uh, respect um, anybody having any uh, legitimate concern, um, and obviously our obligation is to try to address people's concerns and answer uh, their questions and uh, make sure that we do a good job educating people as to uh, the impact of, of this project generally, both from an environmental point of view and, and obviously from uh, many of the other aspects of the project too. So yes, it's our obligation to educate people and answer questions. We acknowledge that. One concern that you will find widespread across this province is that people are a little bit gun-shy when it comes to mega projects like this. Price tags in the 10 to $12 billion. Will there be any public money requested from your company, either provincially or federally, to be get behind this project? We have not asked anybody for any money at all. Will you be? Um, we won't be asking the province for any money. The federal government may well have in place programs to support uh, green hydrogen, not our project specifically. We have not asked the federal government for any money for our project specifically, but if they do something for uh, green hydrogen, um, uh, things like tax credits and so on, and, and if we qualify, then yes, that would apply to our project, but it would apply to the whole industry. Let's go back to the congregation, whether it be the Prime Minister or German Chancellor Schultz, other business leaders from around the world, all came together in Stephenville. Can you explain your role in that process? Because it kind of came out of nowhere. I know the Germans talking about hydrogen fueling some of the rail service or what have you, but that seemed to be a huge collection of people to talk about an industry that doesn't even exist in this province at this moment in time. So what was your role in bringing those people together? Sure. Um, Patty, I can tell you the industry doesn't exist anywhere globally. It's not just that it doesn't exist in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a new industry. Um, and when I say it's a new industry, it's the green component of hydrogen, which is new. Hydrogen is already a huge $100 billion industry, and there's an opportunity to do two things. One is to convert the existing gray hydrogen, which is produced using fossil fuels and is very energy intensive and therefore carbon emitting, into green. Uh, that's one opportunity. And the second is to uh, have green energy open up um, new uh, energy opportunities uh, across a number of fields, including transportation, trains, ships, um, and so on. So, sorry, I haven't answered your question. Let me try to do that. We found out that uh, the German Chancellor was coming to or was proposing to come to Canada uh, in about, I'm trying to think, uh, probably a around the middle of June. And uh, we immediately uh, understood that a huge purpose of that visit was to try to um, convince Canada to uh, become more aggressive with respect to the exporting of li liquid liquefied natural gas, or LNG. And um, it was our sense that the government was uh, probably not going to change its position uh, in respect of LNG, um, and uh, that th this was therefore an opportunity to showcase uh, new energy uh, uh, fields, if you like. And so we spoke to the German embassy, and, and we told them what it was that we were 
uh, proposing to do in, in on the west coast of Newfoundland. We also brought to their attention a number of other projects that uh, are also hoping to um, stand up over the course of the next couple of years, both in Nova Scotia and in, in Newfoundland and Labrador and, and in New Brunswick as well. And um, they were intrigued to hear that. Um, and finally, we were able, I think, to convince them that it was all very well to go to the ballrooms in Montreal and Toronto, but really, why don't you and your delegation come to Atlantic Canada and see something that's actually happening on the ground with respect to energy transition and attempting um, to make a meaningful uh, uh, progress with respect to the energy crisis that exists in Europe today. To the best of your knowledge, can you help us understand how the, uh, the the Germans have set their sights on Canada as opposed to countries much more close to Germany itself, whether it be in Scandinavia or otherwise? Because if the industry is going to go internationally, which it will because green hydrogen will be part of the transition, can you help us understand why the Germans focus on Canada versus somewhere in the EU? Sure. Um, that's a great, actually a great question, and the answer is resonant in that to produce green energy, you need uh, a renewable fuel source, and that renewable fuel source is either hydro or wind or solar, and uh, uh, we would all understand enough about uh, Northern Europe uh, to understand that solar doesn't really work there. You've got to go to the equator for effective solar energy production. Um, hydro is uh, has already been mostly very fully exploited and really the only country that's got major hydro uh, production is in Norway and that all feeds into the grid so there's nothing left there to uh, to go into hydrogen production and wind farms are prevalent uh, all over uh, uh, Europe both on land and offshore and that all goes to feed the grid so and all the best sites for onshore wind and offshore wind have already been used to supply the grid um, with renewable energy. So the opportunity to uh, to build renewable wind farms for purposes of producing green hydrogen, uh, you have to go where where the wind in industry or the solar industry has not yet been developed, and that's what makes Atlantic Canada uh, such a, a great place to come because we've got lots of wind, as we all know. We check off a lot of boxes. We've got the wind, we have the water, we have the deep sea ports and proximity to Europe, but we're talking about copious amounts of water, and I think that's where some of the concerns come with environmental assessments, just one part of the proposal or the magnitude that may indeed grow into is not being considered. Uh, help us understand what copious amounts of water means. Not only sure. about how much water, but where's the water coming from? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, that's a great, uh, another great question. So we were attracted to the Stephenville area, not just because there was a privately owned port that was uh, we thought we might be able to work out some arrangement with, um, but also uh, many of your listeners will remember that there was a, a pulp mill on that site, and it was an industrial site, and that pulp mill uh, uh, was using in the vicinity of 10,000 gallons of uh, water um a minute and um, we that's a lot of water and w so that fresh water supply was there uh, and supported the, the pulp mill for many years we only need about half that amount of water uh, for our uh, for our business so that was another attraction ie that the water was already there had been used for an industri industrial purpose in the past and uh, uh, was a great asset so that brings in some water rights questions so 
how does that get negotiated? Is it something that, you know, you just take over a reservoir that had an industrial application? Does the province need to approve that? Did you buy it? How does the water rights access work? Yeah, sure. No, we, we don't buy it. We've got to negotiate that with the town. Okay. So no other what we would call freshwater sources will be needed or used regardless of how large this project grows? No, and we won't be touching the existing water supply for the town of Stephenville. This is a separate water supply altogether. With something that doesn't exist, and we're talking green hydrogen, what sort of complications come forward, whether it be with trade agreements, CETA in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, well, this is a new industry, and um, again, your listeners will understand uh, the world uh, is really focused on climate change and trying to decarbonize and become more environmentally responsible, and a big part of that is uh, looking at the uh, hydrogen consumption today, which is responsible for uh, over 3% of global emissions, and if you add in ammonia production, that goes over to 5%, over 5%, and, and I add ammonia in because the way you transport hydrogen is you turn it into ammonia. Um, because it's more energy dense and therefore it makes it more economic uh, to transport as ammonia. Um, and then you can use it as green ammonia or you can convert it back into uh, green hydrogen. So a very important source of the world's carbon emissions is resident in the existing use of hydrogen and ammonia. And if we can help the world decarbonize um, by producing green, then that's something every nation endorses, whether you're a producer and a user uh, or whether you're just a producer and an exporter. And, uh, and ultimately, look, our hope is that we just don't sit back in the West Coast and produce hydrogen for consumption in Europe. Why don't we have all the buses uh, in St. John's, for instance, um, uh, being operated on hydrogen fuel cells? And ultimately, we'll see fishing boats and large trucks operated on, on hydrogen fuel cells as well. The, so the argument behind it is that, of course, Germany would like to shed or reduce their reliance on energy imports from Russia. And we all know the reasons why. So the timeline seems so aggressive. We're talking about billions of dollars, something that hasn't even been released from an environmental assessment at this moment in time, negotiations that still have to take place, yet still talking about early 2025, possibly, for the export of the product. It gives some people the sense that there's something we don't know here. The, the concept is, well, there's already been a quasi-green light offered. This is going to happen no matter what. Speak to that particular issue because I, uh, just to, for clarification, we have a gun-shy public here with these big projects. People think that this has already been approved. It's just a matter of time and we go through the motions. Yeah. Well, I can assure you it has not already been approved. I wish it had, but I don't have a piece of paper in my hand saying it's been approved and we've got a lot of money to spend and a lot of work to do in order to secure those approvals. But are we hopeful that we will? Yes. And I say that for two reasons, Patty. One is is that, look, th this is an environmentally responsible project. We're not going to be operating a mine and releasing all sorts of dangerous chem chemicals into the water course. Uh, we're not operating a, uh, an oil well. Not that there's anything operating wrong with operating an oil well. As we know, that's a very important industry here in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, but, but you can understand the environmental concerns and the rigor around approval of a mine or an offshore oil well 
in my mind, should be completely different from that, uh, 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 from those rules under which you scrutinize a renewable energy development. Why? Because a renewable energy development is going to help us deal with climate change. A mine or an oil well is not helping deal, uh, deal with climate change. It's making the, cl- the climate problem worse. So, okay, and that's fair enough. The, the question also would be, look, your company is in it because you're looking at an economic opportunity, and there is nothing wrong with that, and profit is not a bad word. But what's in it for us? So, you know, royalties on water or royalties on wind or the jobs that could be created because, like, if Siemens, for instance, are going to build the wind turbines or what have you, what would be in it for us? Describe the economic upside for the people of the province. Sure. Look, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. So there, there are multifold opportunities. First of all, obviously the construction uh, of our particular project, and uh, and I don't speak for other projects, but there, there will be other projects that will create 1,500 to 2,000 jobs over a four or five year period, um, and then we'll have 300 to 350 full time jobs. And look, this is, and, and again, not that there's anything wrong with offshore oil wells, but we all know that that oil is a limited or a finite resource and those oil wells will ultimately run dry. Hopefully the wind in in Newfoundland and Labrador will continue to blow for uh, hundreds of more years. So these are really good permanent jobs that the community can look to. We've offered to train uh, uh, local folks uh, at no cost um, for the jobs that that our project will make available. Uh, We're going to get into the training business ourselves as part of our obligation to the community. We'll be paying local taxes. We intend to enter into uh, uh, negotiations with the provincial government uh, for a royalty on the energy we'll produce. So, look, there, there will be direct and indirect benefits. Some of the indirect benefits, I tell people, will be longer lines at the local Tim Hortons, but but hopefully people will be patient about that because uh, the benefits are considerable. Last one before I let you go, uh, Mr. Risley. Where are the other two areas that you're proposing this similar type of uh, project here? And do you have the same sort of access to water that you would have in Stephenville with that old industrial application? Yeah, sure. So when I said uh, five or uh, six thousand gallons a minute, that is for all three sites. Oh, okay. Three three sites are just the wind turbines. We don't need water for wind turbines. It's the hydrogen plant that needs the right. the water, and and there's, there'll only be one plant, and that will be at the port site in Stephenville. What's the concern with energy loss? We, you know, someone tell me ten units of produced green hydrogen at Stephenville. It gets loaded on the tanker in the form of ammonia, makes its way to the market in this case in Germany, and the energy loss might be from ten units. Three. How does that? How do you manage that as a, uh, in, in terms of profit? We'll say, for instance. Yeah, sure. That all. Uh, that's absolutely a legitimate assessment. Um, there is yield loss. Uh, there's yield loss on on everything. If you cook a lobster, um, you know you pay the fisherman whatever you pay the fisherman, uh, and you only get thirty percent meat, um, and you have to factor that into the cost of the meat. The same is true for hydrogen. There is yield loss. There are transport costs, and that all gets factored into the price of the hydrogen. The good news is that energy prices we know are, are high. That's not good. I'm not, not suggesting that's good, but it provides, if you like, a, a, a floor uh, for us to, to be able to enter the market with green. And, and we've got now a situation where many companies are either willing to pay extra for green or have to are mandated uh, to pay for green because of um, their emission laws in the in the countries in which they operate. I said last one, but that was a fib. What does a tanker look like? Because if this is new, am I picturing an oil tanker or does something have to be built specifically for this green hydrogen product or simply something refit? How does that look? 
Yeah, no, there are existing uh, ammonia tankers uh, okay. around the world now. We're talking to a company that actually owns 55 ammonia tankers. It's already a, a big business, almost 100 million tons, and this stuff gets moved around the world every day, and the tanker doesn't know whether it's green or gray ammonia. Um, it's ammonia, and it's the same sort of chemically chemically balanced product, uh, and they look very much like oil tankers. You wouldn't, you wouldn't from, from looking at them, you wouldn't notice a difference. I appreciate your time this morning, Mr. Risley. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. That's John Risley, the man behind World Energy GH2. We tried to touch on the questions that I've heard bandied about. If there are some others that we didn't get to, you want to send me that note, I will send it along to his group, see if we can't get the answers that you might be looking for. Just a quick point of clarification regarding the extension of the fishery guardians for four weeks. Apparently, it's not for all of them. So someone in their particular area, six out of ten are being kept on which includes the supervisor. So maybe not every fishery guardian will be uh, given the four-week extension. So we'll get some more information on that front as well. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Today's a great day to get on the program. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, even if you just want to talk about what you heard from Mr. Risley, uh, in St. John's Metro, 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, you just heard what we could uh, hear from John Risley and some of the questions, then some answers I think are being misconstrued. But anyway, this is not on World Energy GH2, this particular facet of it. But when I think it's accurate to say that we have a gun-shy population here about these big mega projects, especially if I have any skin in the game, a.k.a provincial monies and or federal monies that's where uh, the issue about duty to document becomes even more and more important so we spoke with Michael Harvey the province's information and privacy commissioner yesterday on the program about the fact that still what are we two and a half years later after the final report on the Muscat Falls inquiry was put forward and it recommended quite clearly that the government implement this duty to document the legislation it still hasn't happened uh, Uh, The recommendation was to have it done in six months, and that has not happened. We're two years plus those six months. So we know what happened, what we heard in the Muscat Falls inquiry, all of those absences of documentation and paper threads and email threads about who knew what when, what went into any type of decision at whatever stage of that particular mega project, and we didn't know it. We didn't have it. And so because of this duty to document, it's quite clear. It would mean that the law would say that the government has to create a permanent, retrievable record of all their deliberations and decisions at work, even if these decisions are made and communicated verbally. This is where it's important. And it's maybe about the cynicism or the lack of trust that so many people have in public institutions, and certainly when we talk about governments and politicians. Some of it's absolutely deserved. So even just in their best interest as elected officials, there is no reason why we shouldn't have that legislation put forward. Because we need that layer of protection. We need to know that based on an access to information request, the understanding of the who, knew, what, when, and why one decision was made or not is right there for us all to see. There's always going to be a need for Michael Harvey to look th- and his team to look through these 
access to information requests and you know whether it be commercial sensitivities or proprietary information or intellectual property they can always be protected but the way that government conducts its business because remember so many people involved in all the different layers of these big projects and now this is different than muskrat because of course this is not government doing it not government letting the contracts necessarily but we just need to have that put in place it's in their best interest. So every time that there's a buzzword used on the campaign trail, accountability and transparency, this ensures it. Now, the government will tell you that there's already an act that covers it. It's the Management of Information Act. Sets out all of these requirements. But the Management of Information Act was also in place during the entirety of the Muskrat Falls scenarios. So it didn't protect us then. There's no reason to believe it's going to protect us then, uh, protect us now. So let's see if we can get that done, because that's the other side of the coin when... We just need to know, because again, we only get to speak to the ministers, the elected officials, when so much of the work is done, well, I'll call it behind the scenes. And that's not to say that there's all, it's always nefarious and there's not much skullduggery, but we don't get a chance to talk with these senior bureaucrats. And consequently, we don't have an opportunity to speak directly with the folks who do the lion's share of the work. We know the buck stops on the minister's desk, but that doesn't mean that there's not hundreds of others involved in these types of decisions and ongoing negotiations. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're also going to talk about energy, this one, and nuclear power. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Bailey. How are you this morning? Not too bad at all. How about you? Uh, doing pretty good. Thanks. Good. I want to talk about the situation in Ukraine, uh, specifically the intense fighting and, and uh, artillery shelling of the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant there. Uh the shelling and the fighting has intensified over the last few weeks, despite uh, international efforts to have that area around the nuclear power plant and the power plant itself to clear a, a demilitarized zone. The Russians uh, show no sign of uh, even giving any kind of consideration to the international, uh, the international community and their pleas for. Uh, well, of course they haven't. It's been, it's been knocked off the grid a few times, and of course there's diesel generation backup, but of course any interruption in the cooling can possibly lead to a catastrophe. Also, it's important to remember that the people of that country are still have the thoughts of Chernobyl and that disaster fresh in the front of their minds, which I would imagine adds to the anxiety felt there, and of course probably drives some of the comments coming from the uh, IAEA. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and you may quite rightly point out that the diesel generating uh, capacity there—that's that's a backup yep. system, right? When when the main lines go down, uh, the diesel kicks in and is supposed to uh, power the plant and, and keep those fuel rods from overheating and exploding, right? And uh, so if the diesel, if the redundant systems they go down now because of the fighting, uh, you're going to have no power there, and you have six nuclear reactors, the largest uh, nuclear power plant in Europe. Uh, you know, if you have a major explosion there at that plant, it's, it's going to be devastating, not only for Ukraine, but uh, for all of uh, Western and Central and Eastern Europe. It, it's just going to be, uh, be a nightmare there, you know. And, you know, what's also interesting is that it'll be a nightmare on site, but it could be a nightmare for people and countries in close proximity, including Russia itself. So it's all really quite dangerous. But they've been obviously quite callous and unwavering their disregard for whether it be civilians or hospitals or schools or apartment buildings or nuclear power plants or otherwise. So there's no reason to believe that they're going to hearken the, the concerns from the IAEA or the United Nations or the Security Council or anybody else. 
Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, Putin seems to be uh, seems to have a one-track mind. He I, and uh, you know, I'm not trying to get inside the mind of Putin, but uh, he's just out of his mind uh, with, with with the shelling that's going on at that nuclear power facility. And uh, he's continued threats, by the way, to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. This has the uh, potential now to draw in uh, NATO. Uh, and other countries into a much broader conflict, I think. And, uh, you know, if you have to be a student of history. You have to look at World War One and World War Two, And uh, World War Two started with uh, Hitler's invasion of Poland. You know, he had laid the groundwork for this going back to when he first became Chancellor of Germany in 1933. Uh, he laid the groundwork for, for the eventual, uh, eventual uh, start of World War Two. but it was the invasion of Poland crossing from the German into the Polish frontier. That triggered uh, World War Two. Yeah, the appeasement plan yeah. didn't quite work. Um, yeah. So, uh, in addition to that, I don't know what to make of some of the stories. It's hard to know what's factual and been backed up and verified from multiple sources. But even when we talk about not only the plant being knocked off the electrical grid and backup diesel generation, but the people that work there. There's thousands and thousands of people work at this facility, and there's stories about so many of them being abducted and killed and tortured. So just imagine if we come to a critical mass of lack of staff to even manage a nuclear facility like this one in Zaporizhia, or however you pronounce it properly. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. And uh, the people that are working there are working at uh, literally with a gun put to their heads. So they're, they're under high stress. And uh, in, in that kind of uh, occupation, stress is uh, a killer. You know, if you uh, if you're under high stress for any reason, much less having a gun put to your head, uh, literally, uh, you're bound to make mistakes. Even if there's no artillery, uh, you know, shelling or rockets or anything that hit the plant, uh, there could be a mistake made, like was at Chernobyl, because these uh, workers are under high stress and they're prone to make mistakes. And if they make mistakes, uh, that could also cause a, a, a nuclear uh, accident, right? It could. I mean, everything is quite scary. We're a number of months into this invasion at this moment in time. And it's remarkable to me how it doesn't really get much attention any longer. The world is numb to these types of conflicts, which has scary implications as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, I, I watched it through a, 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 the corner of my eye just so I can keep abreast of what's actually happening over there. But it's not on the headlines or in the headlines like it once was. No. And, you know, you have to think uh, the big picture here. Uh, with the international community and international relations, and particularly now with the United Nations, Russia is a, a permanent member of the uh, uh, UN Security Council. Yep. And uh, Russia is plays an integral role in uh, global affairs, whether you like it or not, whether you like Putin or not. Uh, that country uh, has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons. They are still a major uh, international player in international relations. They have a permanent seat on the uh, UN Security Council, and their influence is global, whether you like it or not. And uh, as long as you have the leader of that country uh, on this maniacal track to uh, to seize Ukraine and try to restore the uh, former uh, Soviet Union, this is the biggest threat to uh, global security and, uh, and global health. You know, it's not COVID. If we have a nuclear uh, meltdown, 
in Ukraine and, and if there's nuclear weapons used in Ukraine, that's going to draw everybody in and, and we're just going to be going down the rabbit hole, I think, you know. Well, regardless of where people come down on the United Nations, the necessity of or the structure of, it is a thing. And a permanent seat on the Security Council is it comes with a very, very big hammer. So in addition to Putin's sickle, he has a huge hammer sitting in that particular seat or his representative being the diplomat responsible. Uh, final thoughts from you, Colin? You know, we're seeing now that uh, the, I won't call it an alliance, it's, I call Russia and China uh, not an alliance like Canada and the United States and NATO. They're more like friends with benefits. That's how they view, view each other. Uh, symbiotic, parasitic relationship. What can you do for me now? It's not what you did for me yesterday. What can you do for me today? And you're seeing a Sino-Russian nexus forming, and maybe with uh, North Korea too and some other countries. But this is very troubling. Uh, they're acting as a counter a counterbalance to the West and NATO. So I, I think this is uh, drawing in China now, and potentially India and Pakistan too, the Indian subcontinent. They're, they're watching all this, and they have nukes too, right? That so they it's, do. Uh, it's, getting to be, it's getting to be a very, um, a very worrisome situation, I think, if uh, Russia and China decide to hitch their wagons uh, to each other. And uh, Russia and China are, are undergoing uh, uh, very large military uh, exercises now as we speak too in the uh, western pacific and uh, so uh, this is uh, this is very worrisome if you're looking at nato and how nato and, and the united nations and other international institutions are going to fit in and and and, and uh, assess the threats from the uh, sino-russian uh strategic uh, link, you know? Yeah, I do know. Scary stuff. I'll just switch gears very quickly before I let you go and get off to the news. There's going to be a lot of conversation in the country based on what we just saw, the horrific circumstances in Saskatchewan. The main suspect, of course, died after being arrested yesterday afternoon. People are repeatedly talking about the fact that he had a lengthy, violent criminal history, some 59 charges as an adult alone, and thoughts about healing lodges and parole and the like, because those are human emotions that come on the heels of stories like this. So your thoughts on how that conversation is, is going, because there's going to be more and more of it. You can count, you can bet your bottom dollar. The parole board will be brought into question because people react when they see 10 dead, 18 injured, 13 uh, site, crime sites. Uh, there's a conversation to be had. Your thoughts? You know, with the parole board, you have a, a group of people who are tasked with assessing the, the future risk of an offender if he or she is released into the community. The ultimate goal is to uh, release an offender into the, into a community and reintegrate that uh, offender so that offender becomes a law-abiding citizen. So it's always a risk assessment of, of based on past behavior, what is a person going to be like in the future? And, uh, you know, it's, it has to work within a framework of, uh, of uh, the parole board and their statutory obligations and, and other regulations and things. But when it gets when when they get it wrong, uh, we notice. <laughs> you know, when somebody goes off the grid, uh, all of a sudden now the parole board is going to come under scrutiny. But of course, so. it, has be, it has to be remembered that uh, Sanderson, you know, he was sentenced for crimes. He paid his debt to society. You know, he had a very lengthy criminal record. He was out on parole for the latest round of convictions. He was given a statutory release. Uh, the parole board assessed him. They deemed him. 
you know, to be at high risk to reoffend, but they still believe that he could be managed in the community and reintegrated, notwithstanding that high risk. So it's it's either you release him into the community with conditions and monitor him, or uh, you know, if he's so dangerous, uh, there are. Um, the statutes uh, on the books in the criminal code for a dangerous offender status. And if he is, to me, it seems like him and his brother were, were uh, with that criteria. So if somebody is so dangerous, keep him behind bars. Yeah, I mean, it seems quite obvious now. But uh, there will be conversations surrounding that. And apparently one of the people that was killed, one of these Sanderson's tried to kill him before. So yeah. it's just amazing stuff. Kyle, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, Patty. Cheers. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we'll talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labor. That's Mary Shortle. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing very well. How about you? Not too bad, thanks. So we know that some of the temporary pandemic measures that were put in place, some of them are set to expire on the 24th of this month, including employment insurance. Just to remind our listeners, what were the changes made in EI when those changes came to play? Well, those changes were made very quickly during COVID because it was discovered that the current EI system wasn't really effective for the millions of workers who were losing their jobs. So the hours were reduced uh, to 420 hours across the board for everyone. Uh, That meant regular or special EI like sickness or paternity leave or or the other caregiving benefits. Uh, The claim duration was longer. Things like separation uh, payments were not allocated so you could get EI right away quickly when you needed it. Uh, And the the process was simplified. And and what we discovered during the pandemic was that it worked very well for putting money quickly in workers' pockets, putting money quickly in businesses' pockets, and it actually helped uh, to um, stimulate the economy or to hold the economy uh, while everything was happening during COVID. So what happens now on the 25th of September uh, for people who find themselves laid off or reduced of hours or um, because of closures or, or whatever's happening, uh, it'll be a lot harder for them to get EI and so many will be shut out. And that's uh, especially workers coming out of seasonal industries um, in a, a province like Newfoundland that still has rising unemployment, some economic uncertainty, and, and obviously uh, as the, the tourist and, and fishing in industries and others um, have a slow low during the fall and winter, it'll make it harder and harder as the, as the current EI um, uh, rules come into play, or the old EI rules come into play. But if you qualified in the past under the old rules, why would you be shut out this go-around? Well, what will happen is people may not have the hours that they need. Uh, the workers that will be laid off, we're still in a, a COVID. We don't know what's going to happen uh, with future ones. There's people who, because of, for example, things like a shortage of, of uh, materials in workplaces, their hours may be reduced. Um, they may have been. Re- they may be back to work in part-time issues. They may not be working the whole year. So, and and what we found is that the old EI rules just don't meet the needs of people who are unemployed anymore. Before COVID, there was only a third of 
eligible of, of unemployed workers who are eligible for EI. The federal government has been in the process of consulting because they've even recognized that the EI system needs to be a little bit more flexible. It needs to uh, meet the needs of today's workers. And there's been consultations all go- ongoing for the last, uh, well, for the last several months anyway. And so uh, what we've asked the federal government to do is just keep these temporary measures in place until some permanent measures can be made uh, based on what they're hearing from businesses and, and organizations and individuals about making EI work for unemployed workers or workers who are going on special benefits, you know, parental, paternity, or sickness. Uh, and to just hold off. And so that's that's really the case. It's not to make these changes particularly permanent, but to make sure that the, the, those benefits are still available for people until the new changes will happen. Fair enough, because the changes were swift, but some of the, uh, the temporary measures that were put in place also didn't come with the necessary human resources to back it up. You know, Service Canada was swamped, and so it felt like it was going to be easier to get some of those supports, but some people actually were put on wrong programs and ended up paying the price financially and otherwise because if Service Canada can't produce or, pardon me, uh, evaluate all of the applications from one program or another, it created a real mess. And some lack of oversight was also a big part of the problem here, even though those measures were required. I'll, I'll stand by that. If it wasn't for some of the financial support, the economic recovery would have been exacerbated by years. If you think about the numbers of individuals and businesses that would not have survived, that would have been just catastrophic for the country in full. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. There were a lot of issues, and I think that was why it flagged for the federal government uh, that the EI system, as it as it was just prior to COVID, actually through various degrees of erosion over decades, really didn't meet the needs of unemployed Canadians anymore. And they had to scramble to get that money, and I think they did the right thing. And I agree with you that money was needed uh, to keep to keep the 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 economy stabilized during the pandemic, but they were scrambling, obviously, because uh, because of, uh, of all the new things they had to put in place to respond so quickly. But there was a recent stats, can report, Patty, that came out that said that the positive impact um, of the EI system being accessible, uh, the impact on workers' lives was undeniable. And, and the, I'll quote, I think, a sentence from the set, I won't quote it directly because I don't have it in front of me, but it says an inaccessible and inadequate EI program uh, would be another disaster for workers who need access to, access to EI now or when the next crisis comes, never mind what's happening with inflation. That's, that's another added um, added issue that's in the middle of it and as workers are being laid off or um, reduced to part time or their hours are reduced or they're on maternity leave or whatever the, the, the benefit is they need to use the eye for uh, and they're, they're make it's harder and harder to afford the food and your housing and your gas and everything else that's going to be um, have consequences for the worker and their family but it also ultimately has consequences for the economy I Just go a quick uh, comment on inflation and the economy. I know the Bank of Canada with monetary policy levers and they chose to hike the benchmark interest rate to 3.25% outside what they call the neutral range. There were even, you know, people who chime in on it who are, we'll call them experts in the field, that the Bank of Canada, even if it takes a couple of years for these things to have a, a measurable impact, 
it might even drive the economy into recession. So it's a perfect storm. The price of things have gone up, and now to try to manage my consumer debt has also been impacted by this most recent hike. And the end is not, we haven't reached the end of these hikes either. I just want to throw that out there because that's a complicated issue that I think is going to come home to roost for so many Canadians very quickly when they see all of a sudden that managing their line of credit or their variable mortgage or their loan or whatever has now been obviously impacted. So that's going to be part of the conversation here as government tries to figure out any supports that should remain in place and or different changes to policy and application processes. Complicated stuff. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And certainly uh, also as well, on top of that, if there's going to be a downward pressure on workers' wages because if workers currently working full-time jobs are still struggling to uh, to keep up with everything that's happening, let alone uh, more vulnerable workers. And we all know that the workers who bear the brunt of that um, are more marginalized workers and people of color, women, uh, people with disabilities, those who are in vulnerable, marginalized situations. Last one, Mary, before I let you go. And uh, this might catch you a little off guard, but this has happened in the past. When the airport workers were on strike, the PSAC workers, and they chose to pick it in front of uh, Mr. Collins' home, the secondary site picketing. It's happening now in Mount Pearl as well. I know it's their right to do exactly that, but for the residents, it's not something they welcome, obviously. What do you say to folks who are concerned with the secondary picketing sites? Well, I know it's been an issue, and I know the workers in Mount Pearl are doing that now, but you also realize that it's been you know, 10, 11 weeks now into a strike. It, that's a long time for workers to be on strike. It appears that you know the council is not prepared uh, to uh, to go that final leg to settle this agreement, and, and workers are at a point now where they're looking for other ways to uh, create, I guess, a discomfort, uh, which happens uh, in, in in all strikes, I mean that's the reason why workers go on strike is to you know to um, to show the value of their work when they're there and to try and impress upon uh, the employer to get back to the uh, to, to get back to the picket line. I guess what's or to the bargaining table. I guess what's different in this one is a lot of those counselors are working from home and they're not responding. They're not you know even even meeting. Uh, uh, the picketers and, and talking to them. Now, there's been no communication, from what I understand, with any of those uh, counselors. So um, this is a last resort effort, I think, to draw attention and to ask and plead with the, the counselors to put pressure on the bargaining committee uh, for the city of Mount Pearl to actually resolve this strike. There's no need at this point in time, from what I understand, for uh, for the strike to be continuing. I mean, the workers want to get back to work. The council says it wants to settle a collective agreement. The, the people have been very supportive, and the frustrations are growing. So ultimately, what happens on a picket line, the longer it goes, the more emotional it gets, the more uh, frustrating it is, and, and the more ways that people on the line try and find ways to get their point across. Just a general question. You know, we talk about replacement worker legislation, those types of things, but do you think there should be something like a timeline that triggers whether it be conciliator or mediator or arbitration, binding or otherwise? Because some of these standoffs, like the one we had out in Gander there a while back, you know, 50-odd weeks they were on strike. Do you think it would be helpful for employers and unionized workers alike that if there were triggers to bring in those mechanisms that can help settle these issues? I'm so glad you asked that question, Patty, because that is part of what we've been talking about for a long time. There needs to be, I mean, we see now more and more things like corporate lawyers coming in who have no relationship to the workplace or to the workers sitting down to try and bargain these uh, strikes. And the more we see this, the longer these strikes are, 
are happening or when, when outsiders come in and dig their heels in, for example, when, um, when bargaining becomes more public. And so we see nowadays longer and longer strikes. And one of the things we've been asking, uh, we're currently in a campaign now asking the provincial government to review the Labor Relations Act and to implement some of those um, uh, recommendations that were put in as long ago as the Boise Bay strike when they had that uh, that the recommendations that came out of that um, that investigation after that long strike. The same strike in Gander, same way. We've been asking to have measures put in place. Now, we know things like anti-replacement worker legislation are effective. We know that. But there's also needs to be a point in time when, and I agree with you 100%, when a strike becomes prolonged, and I guess you have to determine how long does that mean. But when that strike is at a point where you know, it's been on for a long time, there doesn't seem to be any other means of resolving it, that some mechanism is put in place that can be sparked either by the employer or the union uh, to get it going, or government, I suppose, it, 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 they can intervene in some, in some sense as well. Yeah, I think the uh, outfit out in Gander was maybe DJ Composites, I think, comes yes, to mind. Right. It was an American-based right. engineering company. Uh, Mary, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for doing it. Oh, you're more than welcome, Patty. Thanks for calling. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Mary Shortle, president of the NL Federation of Labor. It is indeed time for a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, let's roll. Line number three, say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville port port He's the opposition critic for finance. That's Tony Wakeham. Hi, Tony. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Just wanted to touch base again this morning on the uh, home heat rebate program, or lack of, I should say, a home heat rebate program, and of course the sugar tax and the fiasco that's become. But I, I just want to briefly mention too, though I heard Mr. Risley on this morning, of course, talking about uh, wind hydrogen and the project out here in in my district, and it's good to hear him come on and provide some uh, clarity on some of the things being proposed. You know, it's uh, certainly we recognize hydrogen and wind power are fuels of the future. And, you know, as a province, we must be well positioned for the economy of the future. And these type of developments are a promising step in that direction. But that doesn't mean there aren't questions to be answered and concerns to be addressed about the proposed wind farm in our region. You know, 2025 is a very ambitious time frame for exporting wind-produced hydrogen from Newfoundland and Labrador. And, uh, you know, we need a full understanding of what's being proposed what the economic benefits to the region and to the province are, whether local employment will be prioritized, and a comprehensive environmental assessment completed to ensure that the impacts are minimized and the benefits are maximized. Well, we tried to cover as many bases as we could with John Risley this morning. Um, there's always a bit more to it than you can ever, ever, I mean, scratch on the surface. Maybe we got a little deeper than that this morning, but I'm going to re-listen to that particular conversation later so I can collect all those thoughts because sometimes when it's on the fly, it's hard to know even what I heard. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to listen to it again later on. Okay. Absolutely. Like you said, uh, and uh, I think the thing for me is the people of Stephenville port port need to be engaged every step of the way in this project because an informed community is an educated community. And, and speaking of being informed, Patty, certainly the people of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador would like to be informed about when the government is going to come forward with their home heat rebate program, which they promised months ago. And, and we're sitting here today still 
no uh, thoughts about how this program will roll out, what the application process will look like, or actually when it will happen. And people are continuously struggling to, uh, to meet the cost with the high inflation that's happening. We saw the interest rates going up again yesterday. You know, costs are continuing to go up. And this is a program that was meant to help with last year's costs. And we still haven't seen it. Yeah, the promises or the pledge or the policy is as old as May. Uh, they said the application process would be coming in a matter of weeks. I've been told that it would be happening this week, but it's Thursday. So, all right, the week's, the week's running out here. Just so people know exactly uh, what this is. Actually, let me retract uh, something I said. The promise, yeah, May. Okay, I think it was May. So this is a one-time uh, money out the door supplement for those of you using furnace oil. If you have a tested-based family net income of uh, under $100,000, receive a payment of $500. If you have a household with a net income between one hundred and one fifty, dollars you get a partial payment, so it'll come somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 500 bucks. just so people know what we're talking about. Yeah, and... and that doesn't sound like it's a complicated thing. Not particularly. Like one would have thought that you know an application process could have been developed quickly, and it and it could have been rolled out the door. But I suspect right now, the the bureaucracy is so busy trying to figure out the how to fix this uh, sugar tax rollout that they're all occupied with that. You know that this sugar tax should never have gone into into existence, and it should be stopped. It is a complete uh, an utter disaster when it comes to how people should roll out a tax or implement a tax. You have businesses and people, nothing but confusion, confusion out there among people trying to understand what do we tax, what, what isn't taxable. And it's not just about 20 cents a liter. As you had said on your show earlier, when you get into some of the powder products, you're seeing prices double. Yeah, there was the it was the iced tea, iced tea that cost seven dollars and eighty nine cents. The sugar tax on it was six dollars and eleven cents. Yeah, you extraordinary, know, really. Yeah, it is completely extraordinary, and it, and I've been talking about this for more than a year. But let me go back to 2016 when then Minister of Health John Hagee, six years ago, Minister Hagee at the time in health said during question period that it doesn't make sense for the province to create a junk food tax on its own. He said it needs to be part of a national picture, and the last thing we need to do is create extra bureaucracy to collect the tax for a marginal benefit. Yeah, and former Finance Minister Kathy Bennett said the same thing. Uh, okay, just a, a couple of quick ones. This just off the top of my head. When we evaluate net family income, I get why we have to have a means test. It just makes sense. We don't need multimillionaires to get a one-time $500 check, so that's fine. But for instance, so I've got a couple of kids at home myself, and the boys still live with us, and thankfully so, as far as I'm concerned. Do they? Do I have to include them? Because they don't pay the bills. I pay their bills. I keep them warm. I feed them. <laughs> I don't charge them rent. I wonder how that factors in. Is that's that? a good, good question, and you're right, though. This needs to be mean tested. I mean, the home heat rebate program that was in place uh, previously took that into consideration because you're absolutely right there are people who can uh, deal with the high high costs of living and the rising prices a lot better than than others people on fixed incomes people seniors in our province these are people who do not have the benefit of additional monies coming in or increases in their income and what they're seeing is erosion, erosion now when they go to the grocery store, and erosion obviously in when they go to try and heat their homes because of the significant increase that has happened. This program, after much uh, debate in the House of Assembly, was something that the Liberal government promised, 
And I don't understand why six months later people still have no idea of how they apply for it. Yeah, and now, of course, if you go back, they'll provide you with a phone number to call, but, of course, that's a waste of time because there is no application process understood at this moment. If people would like to make their own personal inquiry, the email is probably the best option when you're dealing with the government these days, and it's taxpolicy at gov.nl.ca. If you'd like to make your own personal request of the department to understand exactly when this is going to take place and how long the turnaround will be. It's one thing to have the application process up, quite another to see how long it's going to turn, take to turn around. Appreciate the time, Tony. Last word goes to you before I go to the news. Like I said, Patty, this two things. Sugar tax, cancel it. Admit it as a mistake. Cancel it right now. Own up to it. And get this home heat rebate out in people's hands who really need it. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Tony Wakeham is the PC member for Stephenville Port. A port. Okay. Time for the news. When we come back, uh, lots of time for you. (laughs) Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Patty, I'm right in the middle of reading a book, and I thought you might be a little bit interested in it. A bit of FYI for you this morning about NHL hockey, and probably one of your favorite topics. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, a man by the name of Eddie Shack. The nose. Uh, I think he's still alive. I was told he's still around. I haven't heard anything otherwise. No, nope. he, he was born in '37, so he'd be around 85 years old now. He died. Oh, he's uh, gone. Is he, Patty? Yeah, Eddie Shack died. Uh, I'm going to say two years ago. I believe wow. he had cancer. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow, because uh, in the book I, I, I'm reading now is called Clear of the Track. Uh, he he actually almost died of uh, uh, pancreatic cancer as well some years ago let's just say i didn't know that petty yeah i mean eddie shack pretty famous entertainer which was one of his nicknames as well as the nose which is yep. a very unkind nickname. Maybe the entertainer. <laughs> uh, and clear the shack one of my pals had a lunchbox for clear the shack here comes shack clear the track here comes shack i remember that as, as a child most famous as a, a toronto maple leaf yeah i don't know he, he played like for 17 18 seasons in the national years? hockey league how many years 17 okay I, I 17 not bad he, good he, guess he started with the rangers uh Gosh, what do we got here? He started with the Rangers, went on to Boston, Buffalo, Toronto, Pittsburgh, and he finished up in Toronto. He played for the Kings too, didn't he? Yep. He did, uh, yeah, he uh, finally in, into L.A. in 69. Yep. Okay, cool. But uh, he, you know, Patty, something about him? He, he was, do, you know, do you know that he could not read or write? I did not know that. He was uneducated. In fact, I got a book here that my brother gave me, so, gave my father some years ago, but that's since passed on. But the book... Eddie could not read or write, but he could sign his own name. But he couldn't sign it E-D-D-I-E. He could only sign it E, Shaq, or Ed Shaq. And the book I got is actually signed by Eddie Shaq. That's very cool. Maybe one day I'll send it off to you, my buddy. Yeah, I mean... I'm getting old, so i got nobody to give it to. But maybe one day I'll, I'll give you that because I know you love hockey. And uh, it's, it's, the stuff in that is just unbelievable, the stories. And he actually was a part of the NHL old-timers back in the 79, early 80s, Patty. He came to Newfoundland five times. And it says uh, he loved, they loved coming here. They didn't know how to take the Newfoundlanders at first because he thought they're so friendly. They must want something. <laughs> then he got to realize that, no, that's the way they are and... He found him kind of amusing, but he's his kind of people. I saw Eddie Shack playing an old-timer game at Memorial Stadium. Uh, trying to remember some of that. Norm Ullman was there that day. Uh, oh, this real uh, Jean Rattel was there. Uh, guy who played for the Rangers. Oh, real slick center. What was his name? 
can't remember, but I did see Eddie Shack uh, at the Memorial Stadium. And remarkable just how popular he was because he wasn't so-called great player. I don't think he ever scored 30 goals, for instance. He probably spent more time in the penalty box than anything else. He didn't mind dropping the mitts every now and then. He was uh, certainly a very entertaining fellow, even in his post-career. I know that he was the spokesperson for the pop shop. Yeah, I was going to mention that. <laughs> I don't know if you remembered that. Yeah. I did, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that on Kenmore Road somewhere? Uh, no, the pop, well, as far as I can remember, the pop shop is where uh, Jumping Bean is now on the corner of the Cove Road and Elizabeth Avenue. Okay. Uh, that was a pop shop distributor, I believe. That's what pops in my head. Uh, do you know it says in the book that he wanted, they wanted to get Carol O'Connor, Archie Bunker, to do a commercial for him, but Carol O'Connor wanted $500,000. <laughs> and it was like, hello, goodbye. Yeah, see you, this Archie. back in the 70s, Patty. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And not only that, I don't know if you knew this, but we all, we're all familiar with Tim Horn's Donuts? Yep. Guess who started up his own donuts back then? Eddie Shack's Donuts, just outside of Toronto. <laughs> really? <laughs> but, but, but it never lasted. It, it folded, right? <laughs> Eddie uh, Shack Donuts, very Eddie good. <laughs> good stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's just a great book. And like I say, maybe one day I'll, I'll, I'll give it up, pass it on to you, buddy, because I know you love that kind of stuff, right? But there's a lot of great stories in there. A lot of, well, like he could not read or write. And that's what amazed me, right? Yeah, I had no idea. I'd never heard that before. But yep. any time we have a little change of pace here and talk about something like this, it's always pleasing to me anyway. I know, my buddy, because, I mean, I listen to you every day, and the, the news is, you know, doom and gloom a lot of times. But I want to say something else, too. That fellow that calls in, Colin, yeah. I, I like listening to him. It's interesting because I just got an email saying that another person doesn't. So it oh, <laughs> just goes geez. to show. And we're not all everybody's cup of tea. Some people love Colin's calls. I enjoy Colin's calls. Yeah. I think, you know, a change of pace outside of what we talk about a lot is always welcomed once again by me. So good. I'm glad you enjoy his calls. and I really enjoyed this chat. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, buddy. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Clear the track. Here comes Shaq. Yeah, one of the boys, I can't remember who it was, had that lunch tin. And he was a Leaf, a uh, Toronto Maple Leaf on it. I think he's won like four Stanley Cups. Four or five, huh? Yeah, over his square. Anyway, let's keep going. Line number two. Clifford, you're on the air. Good day, sir. How are you doing? Doing excellent. How are you doing? Wonderful, Patty. And thank you for your great service to the province and giving people a platform to bring uh, issues forward that are important to them. Uh, I heard you uh, mention in your preamble about the announcement of the extension of the River Guardian program. And I'd like to thank the minister for at least caring a little bit about our, our Atlantic salmon resource here in this province. Um, Barry Fordham and Paul White and many others have lobbied along with myself and Kim McDonald. Uh, so we've got about a quarter of what we were looking for. So we've st we're still faced with about 75% of the problem. We wanted 80 guardians for eight weeks. We got 40 guardians for four weeks. But at least it's a step in the right direction, Patty. Absolutely. And I did clarify after. I didn't know that it was only a limited number of the guardians. But, of course, the one region where a fellow sent me an email, six of ten in his area will remain on for the next four weeks. So it's a good start. And, you know, sometimes credit where credit is due. Government heard and was understood that it was a problem, and they did something about it. Maybe not 100% of the solution, but at least partially. Yes, Patty, it's a start. You know, in D.C., the federal government has invested a billion dollars in their salmon industry over the last uh, three years. Maybe we can pick up an extra million bucks next year to finish off what uh, what needs to be done here in terms of River Guardian pro uh, program. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador has 75% of the Atlantic salmon uh, stocks in North America. It's a very precious resource, and to rebuild that resource, first of all, starts with enforcement. And second of all, is dealing with 
uh, our predation issue, of course, which we've talked about before, which could be addressed through uh, Bill C-251, but that's a topic for another time. And then down the road, maybe some funding for some salmon enhancement to really make that resource what it could be and have something that can really contribute tremendous amounts of, of new dollars into our tourism economy. Uh, now, uh, the, another thing I'd like to talk about, Patty, is we still haven't uh, had anything on the mackerel. Uh, we're, we're waiting. Uh, I, I spoke with ministers' officials last week, and they're going to have talks with all their managers and, and their officials and scientists and whatnot and see if they can reopen that that fishery. And I'd just like to encourage uh, everybody to keep the pressure on because there is a chance that that, that fishery may reopen. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there, but, you know, anecdotal evidence is important. Of course, you know, the compilation of science by DFO is a big part of this, and we haven't had that science done in a couple of years. But everywhere that I hear from anybody who who sees mackerel in their bay, it's like they've never seen before is what they say. Now, you know, I can take some of that with a grain of salt, but it's obviously a strong season for mackerel, and it complicates not only the commercial export, but for the bait fishery that mackerel is. And then, of course, all the distinctions or lack of understanding about where the eastern seaboard uh, stock is or is not, and they're migrating further north. We're probably going to see more mackerel here than they see on the eastern seaboard of the United States, and they're still fishing mackerel there, and we're not. There's something cockeyed about it. Absolutely, and, and, you know, there's questions about whether this stock has migrated, in fact, from Europe. And the Norwegians this year are going to catch around 300 million or sorry, 300,000 metric tons of mackerel. Uh, you know, they've, they've put tracking devices on salmon before. Why not put some tracking devices on these mackerel and, and see uh, the actual migration patterns? If they care, they, if the FO cared, they would invest in this. This is a this is an, an industry that could contribute so much to our province. There's absolutely no problem with, with having a 50,000 ton mackerel quota based on the the plentifulness of the mackerel in our waters this year. Uh, and to bring back a four a 4,000 ton f- fishery is a drop in the bucket to be caught in two or three days. But at least it would show the plentifulness. Uh, of the resource, and that would be a factor in determining next year's quota for sure. Uh, one other thing, Patty, is last year there was around 2,000 tons of codfish left in the water, and I'm getting a lot of calls from cod fishermen uh, throughout my riding, and they'd like to see a rollover of that of that uh, cod quota that was left last year uh, in a similar fashion to what happens in the offshore shrimp fishery with the uh, with the factory freezer trawlers. So precedence has been set there before in rolling over quotas, and the the cod fishery has been a tremendous success this year. And I guess uh, a big part of that is that there was no squid for harvesters to fish, and uh, with the mackerel quota gone, there wasn't uh, many other places for the fishermen to uh, put their efforts. But there was a wonderful sign of codfish. It's never been so plentiful in terms of catch rates. So I'd just like to put that out there. I'm going to be I'm going to be lobbying the minister to have to have that quota that was left last year to get it rolled over and tacked onto this fall because what's remaining in the codfish reel will be probably caught in in ten days to to two weeks. Uh, there's nothing there. Uh, to, to hold up to uh, the, the catch rates, Patty. Fair ball. I appreciate the time this morning, Clifford. Thank you. Oh, one other thing, Patty. Okay. Uh, that's on my mind. Hello? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, LNG. 
Uh, the German Chancellor came here looking for LNG. Uh, Prime Minister said that it wasn't feasible for us to export LNG. Argentina is a long ways away from the natural gas markets of the world. They're about to invest $10 billion in an LNG project. If Argentina, being so remote as it is, sees it feasible to ingest, to, to invest in, in developing their natural gas industry, I think we should be on that path here as well ourselves, especially with 8 trillion cubic feet on the Grand Banks. Yeah, I think there's one LNG uh, offloading uh, facility being built in Kitimat, if I'm not mistaken. There's been 18 applications. Now, all of them certainly wouldn't have been economically viable at the time, but there's no argument here. Look, LNG is going to be important. Uh, there's nothing stopping the producers here. Apparently, the provincial government is working on a royalty regime. The producers offshore have long been looking at what is a break-even, whether it be for LNG at at sea, which of course is a real thing now. They have rigs that do it, or piping it to shore to liquefy it to then export it to whatever customer, because it's going to be in demand, and it is an opportunity in the country, obviously so. And the United States right now is exporting a billion dollars worth of uh, liquefied natural gas per day. Foreign investment in the United States is at double uh, what it is in Canada per capita. And uh, we need more confidence in, uh, in terms of more, more confidence in the investment community worldwide so that they, they can invest in, in Canada, in our industries, and have faith that uh, the goalposts won't be moved when they're about to take a shot. A good hockey player like yourself wouldn't be taking too many shots and you wouldn't be playing hockey if they were moving the goalposts all the time. I might have caught some of the shots that I whipped wide, though, all the same. Uh, appreciate the time. I only saw Clifford on my screen. I didn't realize it was Clifford Small. So just for the purpose of people know who we're speaking with, it's Clifford Small. He's the uh, Conservative Party of Canada member for the Costa Bay Central Notre Dame. All right, sir. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Take care, Clifford. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, one more before we get a break here. Let's go to three. Blanche, you're on the air. Yes, I was at uh, Come By Chance Got yesterday fishing, and I found a set of keys. And uh, it's uh, a Ford. I, I would say it's a Ford truck, and it's a remote on it, and it's two keys there, Trimark on it, and another key. So so if any, anyone out there lost them, they could give me a call. Absolutely. Someone's obviously missing it. You want to give out your number, Blanche? Pardon? You want to give out your number or just leave it with Dave? No, 1709. Yep. 546. 546. 2642. 2642. And, uh, sorry, go ahead. Okay, okay. I was just going to ask you, uh, Aaron? Pardon? Sorry, I just asked you how the fishing was. Not good. Not good? No, I never got needle in a year. What were you going for? Salmon. Okay. Now, some people call it to come by Chance Beach. And some more people call it the gut. Some come by Chance gut. So okay. it's one, two places. Well, you found the keys. Look like they're for a Ford truck. If you lost them in and around the gut in Convoy Chance or Convoy Chance Beach, Blanche has got it. Her number is 5462642. Okay, my darling. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Blanche. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.
Uh, Blanche was my nanny's name too. Uh, <laughs> you never know what people hop on by when you hear it on the show. It never seems to amaze me. Uh, so the, the pop shop. <laughs> One second here. Paul tells me the pop shop was Freshwater Road where Manor Bakery is. Am I totally wrong that there wasn't a, a pop shop right there on the, the corner of the Cove Road or New Cove and Elizabeth Avenue? That was the Gordon Butler building. Is that what it used to be called? Anyway, so I thought there was one there. Let's check the email. <laughs> there's, I, I will, uh, Obviously, there's probably more than one. Okay, what else we got here? There was a pop shop on Freshwater Road. Yeah, that's the one we just had, it, uh, the place that is now Manor. Uh, MJ Maloney, Madame Baloney, funniest story ever. So we're just back to school. Nicholas uh, Myolis, on the first day of school, he goes in, and uh, of course, I, like any parent, you have that little bit of separation anxiety. He comes home from school that day, and yeah, how's your day? And, you know, who's your teacher? And all this stuff. And his homeroom teacher was, oh gosh, the name just jumped out of my mind. Anyway, uh, and then he met his music teacher, and her, her name is Mary Jane Maloney. She's actually a, a distant cousin of mine. But Nicholas looks at me all confused, and he says, he was in French immersion, who's your music teacher? He says, uh, Madame Baloney? <laughs> <laughs> so he was, she was Madame Baloney uh, for little Nikki D. Anyway, there's a back-to-school memory. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go. Line number one, Dave, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Paddy. Morning. Top of the morning, you. Listen, uh, uh, I was just thinking, uh, I remember playing with the old-timers back in uh, Memorial Stadium, and uh, I remember Eddie Shack. Clear the track, here comes Eddie Shack, and I... I'm pretty sure Guy Lafleur was there. Really? Ian, yeah, and Ian Turnbull, and John Bellyvaux, and one of the pop fans, actually. Wow. I was a, I was, I was a, I was only a kid playing. Uh, I think it was the Oops. I was only like six years old, and I remember going up on a breakaway, and Eddie Shack had a, a stick about twelve foot long, <laughs> w- with a blade on each end of it. And I was going up on a breakaway, a little kid, and he picked me up off the center of the ice and took me off the park. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Andy Bathgate. Andy Bathgate used to do the old double-ended uh, double stick too, if oh, I remember okay, correctly. Right, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, nice. and I'm pretty sure. Uh, well, I used to. I had all the autographs on an old flag and everything. It was uh, this was, I guess, in the late seventies, right? But whatever. I think the pop shop was on. Uh, Luggy Bay Road and the top of Canad Hill, Torbay Road, where the carpet factory is. A ton of people have told me the exact same thing, exactly right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where it was, because I remember when I was a kid going out with my mother and father getting Pop Shop. What? Oh, I remember going for the Pop Shop as well. Yeah. And, you know, tr- there was five of us, so it was always an argument about how many we were getting of each flavor. Yes, right, that's right, yeah. There was about eight or ten flavors, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the old, I think they came in a red plastic uh, carry case. And right. Yeah, you're right, but you put 24 in the case, yeah. And the little stubbies. Yeah, a little stubby bottle, that's right. Yeah, that's great stuff. Up in uh, up in Vancouver, sir, in Port Coquitlam, there was a pop shop place up there, because I lived up there for a few years. Okay. <laughs> in Vancouver, right, just outside of Vancouver, Port Coquitlam. Yeah, beautiful. And there was a place up there, too. And uh, another thing, one more note, Colin, I think he has a very, uh, every time he calls in, is a very in- intellect intellectual conversation. Yeah, he's sharp, no doubt. Yes, for sure. Okay, have a good day. Yeah, thanks, you too, Dave. Okay, right. take right. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, uh, you never know what's going to catch on. It just never ceases to amaze me. 
you know i don't know i i try to spice it up and spread it around and try to ensure we bring forward topics that may be of interest to you <laughs> today pop shop i am not exaggerating i had 25 messages about the pop shop since it was mentioned in the call we had with uh with dave or well no it wasn't dave what was the gentleman's name who called he was reading the book ah just jumped out of my head paul paul it was paul anyway yeah so tomorrow it's all about joggers uh, three abreast on the road dogs pulling on your lawn uh the dump beer in the theaters and and the pop shop and loud motorcycles <laughs> that's what we're talking about <laughs> all right uh, good show today big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big Land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye bye